Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on DAP, we have Tenant, starring John David Washington, Robert Pattinson, Elizabeth Debicki, and Kenneth Branagh. Written and directed by Christopher Nolan. Welcome back to Rice Smile Films. It's time to continue on in 2021 with a look back at 2020 or 2020 catch-up cask. And up next is a film from Christopher Nolan that came out this summer. We only got to see it for the first time in December, but uh, that's uh, today's episode. And we have a special guest in the studio with us here to help us decode everything that there is in this movie. <laughs> so, Nate, I'd like to welcome you back. He was previously on for Ghost Story and The Rise of Skywalker. Gentlemen, thank you. Of course. <laughs> Big announcement for Nate today. He's uh, one year older officially. Yes. So his birthday gift to us is gracing us with his presence because it's not the other way around, I'm sure. Cheers to that. Happy birthday, Nate. Yes. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Yes. So that's some more of the Balconies, the Texas Pot Still Distilled Bourbon, their standard uh, bourbon whiskey. What do you think of that? Have you ever had that before? I, I have not. That's that's really good. It's nice and smooth for like twenty seven dollars. Like really, it's that's a nice yeah. it's a nice bottle of bourbon. Do you taste any of the like kind of sweet sweetness tones? Like I I like I get like a honey kind of taste on the front yeah. end. Yeah, I still get that. And then there's still that we talked about it a little bit last week. That the trailer, the back end is leathery, earthy. I don't say hearty. Um, earthy is the best word I have for that. I'm not like I'm eating dirt, but <laughs> that's not tasty at all. <laughs> Nate, I just want to ask you real quick: uh, when you when you drink a whiskey, do you prefer kind of like a like an, an intense whiskey experience, or do you kind of like it to be a little more smooth, a little more complex on the back end? Uh, I prefer it a little on the smooth side, but I'm you know I'm always want to taste everything sure yeah you know but i i would prefer it smooth and i'm a on the rocks kind of guy okay so you want some ice with that oh i'm all right (laughs) (laughs) Uh, real quick before we get started last week we had a great conversation uh matt and i about the worst rogues galleries in comics and i just want to shout out our boy brett who came up with three that we had given some consideration to he did number three was black panther It's, it's pretty spot on number two hawkman dear god and number one, and we gave some consideration to this one, The Incredible Hulk. Like, take, take the leader and the abomination, and now we're like, what are we doing? <laughs> and even those two are pretty sketchy. Even those two are, are really are really pushing it here. So, excellent. Uh, you got a favorite, or uh, the, who do you think has the worst villains? Ooh. I don't know, man. <laughs> That's a loaded question. <laughs> there's, there's so many candidates for it. Take your pick. Excellent, excellent. Well, let's get started, gentlemen, and let's get started with our flight question. Nate, you know the drill. Welcome to the Three Timers Club. Uh, the role of the guest is to bring along the flight and nightcap questions. So what do you have for us for the flight today? So for the flight, 
this is being your guys' first Christopher Nolan movie that you're reviewing. Name me your top three Christopher Nolan movies. Excellent. Why don't you start us off? Okay. Now, this was a hard decision. Yeah. I'm a big fan of Christopher Nolan. Yeah. Uh, I have to go number one, probably the one oh. I can watch. Go. Let's do three. Want three, two, one? Yeah, three, two, three, one. Three, two, one. All right. Three, I will probably go with The Dark Knight. Okay. And do you want to go around? Yeah, let's let's okay. you, you go next. That one's going to show up on my list too, and then we can kind of kind of discuss it as it comes around. Okay. One from that trilogy as well for me at three, but the first one, Batman Begins. That's where I'm going to go with that. Dark Knight will not make my list. The I've been hankering to watch Batman Begins as of late. I've been re- reviewing um, some of the old animated series on HBO Max, and um, you know it, it derived a lot from that and, and Year One. So yeah, I've been wanting to kind of check that one out again. That's the best for me. Can I, I know we're, yeah, that's the best origin mm-hmm. of the Batman. That's not, we joke about it, but yeah. the pearls in the alley against yeah. the moonlight bullshit that we've seen a million times. I think it's handled the best and it's the most interesting. And I like a little bit latter entry, but not so late into it that we're fully developed. I think yeah. it's a good entry time for a familiar hero that none of us really need another backstory on. Right. Yeah, no, that's fair. And it was it was a backstory they really didn't go into tremendous detail with in any of the prior films other than the alley sequence with Joker. Yeah. Jack Napier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, much like Nate, I am I am a fan of Nolan and this was kind of hard to put together, but uh number three for me, I, I've kind of come around to this one in, in multiple viewings, as I kind of do with a lot of his films. They do take a little bit to kind of wrap around. Uh number three for me is Dunkirk. Uh, I thought that for a World War II film about a battle that not necessarily told a lot in the in the history books, and it was kind of fascinating. We got two Dunkirk movies in one year with Darkest Hour and that one, but it's exciting. I mean, using those Spitfire planes, like in the air, those dogfight sequences, or he puts the canvas together in a really interesting way, especially in that one. So that's my number three. Number two. Number two. I have to go with Inception. I wish I could be different. Mine's <laughs> the exact same. And I will admit to both of you and everybody out there yeah. are millions upon millions of followers in Rye Nation. Yeah. <laughs> that movie left me fairly cold after the first viewing mm-hmm. and grew on me significantly uh, with each additional viewing. And there's been several since then. Uh, that's a really terrifically crafted movie. Yeah. And I think visually, which tends to kind of be more in your wheelhouse than mine, Jesse, mm-hmm. It's absolutely stunning. Yeah, I think there's a lot of craft with Nolan. I, the, he takes the time to do things for real, and you got that rotating hallway. And a lot of stuff in this film, I mean, the, the, I think... That's the best. Joseph Gordon-Levitt's fight sequence in the hallway is my favorite fight sequence in anything short of John Wick. Yeah. And the, and the since the 2000s began, it's masterfully done. Well, I wish I could be different than you, gentlemen. It's also my number two. <laughs> How lame. We're, this show's over right now. What a bunch of posers. No, just conceptually, uh, I'm, I'm with you. Like, I think on initial viewing, I was like, yeah, I liked it, but like, I didn't like yeah. love it. And then like, I went again with an, with a friend and saw it and I was like, God, it's kind of sticking. And then I went with my parents and my mom was just so confused. And I was, it was just, it kept like, kept latching onto more the more that I watched it. And by multiple viewings, I've seen it so many times since then. It's, yeah, it's become really, um, yeah, really, really great, really well executed. That's, that's such a interesting high concept idea. I, I love it. 
Number one. Number one. I'm probably going to take a lot of flack for this, oh. but it is my. It's your list. It's the one that I can watch the most. That it it means something to me. You mean Jesse? We're not so snobby that we won't let <laughs> Nate have his own list. Yeah. <laughs> How magnanimous of us. All right. <laughs> Numero uno. Yeah. Interstellar. I absolutely love that movie. See you guys next week. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> but you've done a lot of deep diving into Interstellar. I did when I first saw that movie. It 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 struck a chord with me. So I'm I'm a huge sci-fi fan. Anything that deals with interstellar space, I just it fascinates me. Mm-hmm. And after I watched that movie, it just I I went out and bought the Science of Interstellar book by Kip Thorne, the, the <laughs> physicist. Nerd. I nerded it out for that. Get a so life. Bad. <laughs> I love it. I'm playing it. Good for it. you. Yeah. That's being inspired by a film. Yeah. Like I think that speaks to why it should be number one, man. If you're willing to go that length, and God bless you for that, to get on there and do that deep dive into the science and a fictional thing that never happened. Mm-hmm. Good for you. Like you're in. You're all in. in the science. What really struck. What struck me on that movie that inspired me is the message of the movie. Yeah. Is how it ends, you know, that love is what transcends time. Oh, Jesus. I, <laughs> what I'm, are a, we I'm doing a hopeless already? romantic. What do you want me to say? <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. That's another one of his films that, uh, you know, I saw it, you know, the week it came out, and I was like, yeah, I guess. And then, like, it, it left me kind of like wanting more. Like, I always have these high expectations going into his films because I expect a lot. And then I, I did have to see it again to kind of just get get past that initial reaction. And that's something to kind of the way he makes movies too, for at least for myself as a viewer. I got to get past my own expectation of what I think it's going to be before I can really start enjoying it. Yeah. So. Nate, can I ask you a question? Yes. Sort of unrelated to that, but the idea of love and science fiction realms. Do you like Clooney's Solaris? I have to admit, I've never seen it. Okay. I'd be really interested to see. That's a movie that I, I love. Like As much as I'm teasing you about love and space, like I'm with you. <laughs> well, I'm, we, I'm just being an asshole for the sake of cheap laughs at your expense. But just, I don't know if we've done this on mic or off mic, but we've talked about having Nate on for a Star Wars recap, whether that's yeah. Patreon or whatever that we're going to do. Yeah. Before then or at that time, because like I'm sure you're coming back because we definitely need the Star Wars Sage decoding all things legends and all the other rea- whatever different <laughs> universes they are. Mm-hmm. I'd love, I'm going to give you homework. What a bastard. Seriously, who am I? <laughs> give you homework. You're to a check teacher. Out. <laughs> uh, both of you. So, <laughs> once upon a time. Yeah. So you have homework, homie. And that's, check that out. I, I'm curious to see what you think about that. Sure. All right. Number one. Memento. You knew that, right? Yeah. Um, Noir. Yeah. Plays again with, what's happening now and what's happening in the past. Mm -hmm. But I think in that film done in a really accessible way to first timers with Nolan and it's in black and white. Yeah. So the stuff that's happening in time a is one color and the half that stuff that's happening in time B is another color. And there's a great moment where both of the black and white coincide and you realize like we're now in the reality, like it's all caught up with itself. Mm -hmm. Um, at that time, you guys are going to laugh when I tell you this. At that time, I was certain Guy Pierce was going to be the next thing. Yeah, he was kind of set up for that. And it just never materialized, yeah. did it? Whether that was Time Machine or any other. Oh, I remember time. Time, time Machine. He, he made some really bad choices. Sure, yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, that script is written by Nolan's brother, which mm-hmm. um, is something that happens quite often with the two of them. Yeah. 
I just think that's a really masterful piece. There was not a lot of fanfare around that. And I kind of found that luckily the same way that I found um, El Orfanato, the orphanage, kind of like in Mm -hmm. the back pages of our version of the village voice called the alibi, right? Mm -hmm. And I've loved that movie ever since. Carrie Ann Moss, um, Guy Pierce, and a dude who's trying to figure out who murdered his wife with no ability. Oh, and Joe Pantoliano. How can I forget that? With no I ability. Love, I love Joe Pantoliano. Yeah, with no ability to the make Matrix new tell memories. Me what, the Matrix tells me what the steak's supposed to taste like. <laughs> right. Uh, if you all have I, never seen it, I we, wa- we have to do that in well, here, right? I, I want to do another Nolan uh, proper. cast proper yeah. with that one and Inception uh, just to kind of get into that. No, I love it. You see, it's the hard thing is like when I went to this, I love Memento probably just as much as you do, but mm-hmm. like the way I feel about some of these other films just kind of hits a little deeper, but I got to go to one that's close to my heart. Of course it's Batman and it's the dark Knight. Not necessarily for like what it is and, and, and everything, but I tried to think back into my life about like my star Wars moment or my event film. And it's not Avengers for me. It's like, that's past my like experience, but Nate, you know, we grew up together I don't think there was a film collectively that like my group of friends was more excited for waiting for, for like a year and a half than that movie Yeah, decoding and analyzing every picture trailer news thing that was coming. I mean, we were calling the Harvey Dent hotline. So Aaron Eckhart could tell us to vote for Harvey Dent coming up in July. Like just the viral marketing that we were obsessed if you, if you remember. And then when yeah. it came out, I was just like, I can't get enough. I just got to, I saw it so many times and as a, I'm, I have the Batman bias but uh, it just, it all came together and it, it left me satisfied. So it's different for everybody, but I like, I like a lot of the movies you brought up. I like the prestige. I like, mm-hmm. I like insomnia. <laughs> I like the dark Knight rises and Batman begins. They're all good. It's hard to pick one. Yeah. But. Yeah. It's fair to say, I don't know if he has, well, we haven't done the show today, but, yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm not trying to be coy or anything. I, I honestly, before we go into the breakdown of the film, I still am not entirely sure what I think about this film as far as, and we're not going to rate it today. We're going to break that down in a minute, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. But to the larger point I was making, even if I, like I'm being bombastic here, even if I rated Tenant Rock Gut, yeah. I can't look at either one of you or anyone in the million peoples of listening in Rye Nation. Yeah with a straight face and say that's a terrible film because it's not poorly made. Mm-hmm. It's it's really well made. Yeah. And that's the case with all of them. Like, I don't love The Dark Knight like either one of you two do. Mm-hmm. Might be like my maybe least favorite of his. Mm-hmm. It's still a really good movie. Yeah. The guy's good at his craft. Yeah. I'm curious with both of you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think this is, we're headed for a bit of a long episode this week, everybody. In one word, Jesse and Nate, Describe to me what it is that you think of when you see Nolan's name on the marquee. This is a movie, Christopher Nolan movies are blank. Okay. Christopher Nolan movies are events. And I haven't thought of a director as of late other than like Steven Spielberg. And I would say even David Fincher doesn't necessarily qualify in this camp. But when you, they're able to market a Nolan film with his name alone, which is... I think profound for me for a director. It's usually reserved for actors and exactly. actresses, right? Mm-hmm. It's fair. So I think when you see his name, I think there's an expectation. I think that's where I come in with him is I expect his films to look and act a certain way. So watching Tenant the first time, 
I wasn't surprised it was as convoluted as it was to kind of get into that. But he's going to film on film. He's going to film on location. Little reliance on CGI. I mean, this is kind of, I want to come back to this at the end, but we need more film, not the exact same prototype of the films he's making in Hollywood, but we need more films of that type, risks on originality, than we do the next superhero sequel or the next um, IP being milked out. Because honestly, take take Nolan, horror and comedy out of the summer movie season, it's all something we've heard or seen before. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem for me. The spec market would be one that is created as a fresh concept on screen page, page one. Mm-hmm. And this is the champion of that market. Yeah. Fair? Yeah. I love that. And he, and he had to build up to that. It's not like he started out with Memento and he, that was his goal right out the gate. Nate, what's your word? One word. I'd probably say cerebral. Yeah. You know, his movies, I, I go in expecting it to make me think. To just, he's going to tell some sort of story that's going to just make me think about it and it's going to sit there. And isn't that a little refreshing with movies? Oh, like yeah. I, I'm next to the, the next person. I like to go to the movies just to be entertained and kind of turn my brain off and just enjoy it. But I also like to be put through the test yeah. because I have seen so many movies. So yep. you're guaranteed to have that. Mm-hmm. So I was going to say smart, but I thought one of you might take that too. And you kind of just did. So the word I would I say bet. would be, yeah, you're smarter than me. <laughs> Is elaborate. Yeah. From the design to the choice and casting to the story to all of the intricacies and subplots that make well, like well-rounded characters. You would never say that a Christopher Nolan character on page, which is his brother too. Yeah. Is hollow. They aren't. Mm -hmm. They're fully fleshed out. And he's going to make a movie that's going to be in the time that he feels like it needs to be made. And if I need to spend seven minutes in this exposition dump, Mm -hmm. I'm going to spend seven minutes. And if you don't like it, Go greenlight Mark Webb. Yeah, exactly. Oh, God. <laughs> no, right? You know what I mean? No, I do know what you mean. And that, that's just how imp- integral the Batman stuff was to his rise was it allowed him carte blanche to make some of these big films that who would, on paper, this film, other than his relationship he established with Warner Brothers, what other studio is going to allow a filmmaker to make a movie like this? Okay, so the reason I brought up Mark Webb is not to be cheeky, although it kind of was. Yeah. Without the capabilities of pulling it off i think you get mark webb mm-hmm. and you all know well everyone knows all of our millions know that i love 500 days of summer because it delivers most at least cerebrally but we've also seen misses <clears throat> where you try to be cerebral and i'm not saying the amazing spider-man part two jamie fox gwen stacy thing couldn't have worked out and it wasn't ambitious to try to make that into essentially a love story yeah but you're gonna have to do it in a way that is Nolan-esque and not Webb-esque. And that attention to detail is not a backhanded slap or compliment because I'm comparing him to Mark Webb. It's an acknowledgement of the man who's really a master of his craft. One of the four to five best going currently. And important too, especially in this kind of crucial state of filmmaking Amen. and theatrical re- releases that we're Amen. in. We need Nolan's voice and the films he's making, I think more than we think. Like It's like him... Uh, Denny Villanueva, uh, David Fincher, even Tarantino, as much as to match chagrin, is still kind of not always. Yeah, no, well, especially this last year. Yeah, 
Well, to your chagrin then, too, <laughs> neither one of us was a huge fan of Once Upon a Time and this It was so dream of- long. <laughs> All right. I love it. Oh, great question, Matt. I'm glad you asked that. So That was a good roundtable. We could have had a whole shot just on that, couldn't we? Oh, we could spend, We're almost there now we anyway. We could spend a long time. Yeah, no, my, my thought on the podcast is let it end on its own derision. And if there's stuff to say, say it, because then it's out there. Buckle up because we're doing in-game part two this week for everybody. <laughs> Get comfy. Alrighty, so we're going to do something a little different. We're going to actually try and map out the timeline and some of the crucial things of what make this story tick. So we're going to need all of us working together to, to pull this off. And we'll have some sound to, to help us out along the way. But let's take a deep dive into Tenant. Why does it feel so strange? You're not shooting the bullet. You're catching it. Whoa. I've seen this type of ammunition before. In the field? I was almost hit. And you were exceedingly lucky. An inverted bullet passing through your body would be devastating. Not pretty. These look like today's. They may have been made today and inverted years from now. Where did you get them? Came with the wall. I designed it. I call the material I'm studying here. Do you have an analysis on the metals? Sure. Why? The mixture alloys can tell me where they might have been made. Look, I'm not saying Armageddon here. All righty. So this is totally different. I'm, I'm, I'm handheld over here. <laughs> so I'm going to do something as Jesse's doing this. And that's, I'm going to videotape some of this so we can upload it on something this yeah, week sure, so you yeah. guys can see it. Because Jesse is at his Shantate whiteboard here on the closet in the office of the studio. And we have his uh, penmanship about to walk us through this. So at various times, I'll film it. You good with that? Yeah, and that we sounds can good. Upload it. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to ask you to indulge me, both of you to indulge me first. Okay. Okay. So what I would like to do before we go down into the, as best we can, beat by beat breakdown, holy smokes, of this film. Yeah. Let's do what you and I do all the time. Okay. Tenant is a movie about blank. Okay. Let's establish that first. Nate, you want to tackle that idea first? I think don't I think this is essential because we're playing we're in the writer's room now, aren't we? Yeah. Welcome to Jesse and Matt's process at uh, behind the computer. I'll go first. Yeah, go. Tenant is a movie about going backwards and forwards. I was gonna say time travel, but yes and no. Kinda. <laughs> it's a movie about the inevitability of time. Okay, so this is odd. Usually when I go through this process, it's the assigning of a theme and then building from that. What we're trying to do is taking what's been built and finding that foundation. And this is a very complex foundation that has been erected. I think for me, this movie is about determining what you should champion. It's fair. And the reason, and I don't know if any of those are right, and I don't know if this is right either, and if you want to shoot it full of holes, where are we going to start with that today? I don't, but yeah, I don't know if this His is... His name in yeah. the film is yeah. the protagonist, not mm-hmm. Steve yeah. or Frank. Yeah. It's the protagonist. Yeah. As that is undefined other than I'm the good guy. Yeah, it's a role. So that's that's my argument for that. But then even in the way that the story plays out, you know, what's your role in this scenario? I mean, Neil has a very integral and important role that he can't roll back on. Like the, his moment is you can't take it out of that timeline. Yeah. So, Oh, that's good. 
So that's three kind of different takes though, isn't it? Yeah. So where do we go? Like as I asked you guys to indulge me, let's try to hone this down into one idea. Yeah. Is it, what does it mean to be a hero? How long does it take to be heroic? What is the cost of heroism? What? Hmm. I think it also just, it ties in with the idea of fate as the hero. So the line that Neil uses over and over in the movie, what happens, happens. You can't change it. Do you, okay, so yes. Do you do you believe that? Do you agree with that in this film? Because he creates his own reality over and over, and, and you get a chance to redo it over and over. Mm. So if what happens, happens, and I can erase this, etch a sketch it, 15 times, then I get to be the master of that fate. Kind of. Yeah. So when I was deep diving into this movie, good. Yeah. So the way I took it is how they said that they talk about the grandfather paradox. Yeah. So the way I took it is that it's a closed loop. There's no, alternate reality you don't change the timeline everything happens you go back that should be refreshing matt (laughs) yeah you go back you do it it's already happened and what has happened in the future has already happened so say i wake up for a plane i have to catch a plane Mm -hmm. i'm late i'm not gonna make it i go walk through the turnstile get back through i'm gonna make this plane but at the exact same time i'm taking off i'm still down there sleeping but he's going to get up and go through the turnstile and come back. It's just this repetitive loop that's going to keep on happening. So when you bring up the grandfather paradox, <clears throat> I love that because yeah. that's certainly in this film. I'm going to write it down. <laughs> okay. The quick way to break down or for me to surmise what the grandfather paradox is, is essentially consequence. Some of the decisions that are made in this film are recoverable from you can reconcile some mistakes that you've made and redo them over and over. Not without some expense, but there are certain decisions that you make that you cannot get back from. So let's take your um, airport metaphor that you just brought up, which I love, Mm -hmm. and let's apply that in real life in a tenant sort of way. If I miss a flight, I oversleep, (laughs) which just happened, Sean Thomas, (laughs) if you're listening. (laughs) Sorry about that. If I miss a flight, I can get another flight. Mm-hmm. and still eventually arrive at the destination. But I would assume that there was an importance on leaving in that flight at the time that it was leaving so that I could make it to event X. I cannot get back event X. I can still get there, but I might have meant to ev- I might have missed event X. There's a consequence to that. Yeah, now, this, how significant? The butter- now, if it's my wedding, yeah. that's a big deal. The butterfly effect, so to speak. Essentially, yeah, yes. Essentially, once, once the timeline's in place that you can't alter what's supposed to happen. So, If it's the betting line to close on like a Sunday football game, there's worse things. There's still a consequence, but there's worse things. Like, my, like if I'm in a Vegas wedding yeah. and I miss it, I can still get to Vegas for the reception. Yeah. But I've missed the wedding. Yeah. I can still get there to, and it's one of the most enjoyable things I've ever done, fellas, and we're going to all have to do it once. One is the first four days of the NCAA tournament and the sports book. Yeah. It is glorious. Sign us up. 
let's go. <laughs> so it's, you've never done so much, had so much fun in your, like buckle up for basketball and bourbon and I'll lose your ass, but it is so much fun. Okay. So it, I can get another line on a game, no, right? Sure, yeah. But my wedding's over. No. Yeah. I, I know what you mean. Yeah. And it's like, if you were meant to die in this particular fashion and you alter that, this is the whole time machine thing that if you go back and try and undo that, that those events still take place. They're set in stone, which is a nice, and I think that's what this film kind of dabbles into are the things set in stone that can't be, you know, necessarily like altered from that timeline that they, they happened already. Seder was always killed like at that moment or died. Like, so we can't unchange that. It still has to proceed. So are we trying to find the course of action with the least amount yeah. of dire consequence? Is that what this is? Is that what our film is? It could be. Yeah. Cause there's still a cost at the end of this film. Like the good guys win. Yeah. But the protagonist, that's Isaiah Washington, who's only named the protagonist. John David Washington. I'm sorry, John David Washington. <laughs> sorry, yeah. Which is like similar to Mrs. Robinson, sort of nondescript, only other than the title that the movie has granted you, The Good Wife, The Good Hero. Yeah. He still loses his friend. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even sure where his friend is even going at that point. At that, He's going back into the thing that they just fixed, and I'm not even sure what's happening there. Mm-hmm. But that being said, maybe to drop off the backpack, I don't know. Is that what this is? How can I limit the amount of consequence that my peers, the mankind, my community has to deal with from what's these decisions we have to inevitably make? Could be, yeah. Man, that's that's the theme of this film. Whew. That's tough, huh? But that's interesting. You know, it, it, sure. It's and it's at least, you know, we're playing within a genre time travel ish of sorts where Matt and I have done endgame and given ourselves headaches over that film and films like back to the future and about time. And what I appreciate, you know, a lot about what we're about to get into is it's similar to those, but with like a twist, you know what I mean? It's a type of time travel we haven't seen. And those are the fascinating aspects of the film to me. So let's start at the opera sequence. So this is kind of like this, you know, opera takedown sequence of one of these, let's just call them artifacts. Correct. (laughs) So, you know, this this all plays out. And one thing that I really like, gentlemen, and I know I just we like we like these in place things on how organizations work. I like that scene where they have four patches on the on the armrest and they're trying to figure out, you know, who are we going in as? We've done this a time or two before, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because we have these patches. So I, I like that. We're going in as this unit this time. So In here, you know, we kind of get peppered, you know, the clues about the inverted ammunition, the man with the backpack with the string on it to kind of let us know that there are events at play play here um, that have happened already. We just haven't seen them yet. I'm in full theory that the entire film is given to us, just not in the order we're used to. Sure. If that makes sense, absolutely. Which is definitely a deep dive. But what are, what are, what are we taking away from this particular sequence? This is in term, you know, like an operation of sorts, a test for him. Yeah, it's a CIA operation. Yeah, you learn that he's this spy, and he's been sent to get something from their inside man. So I'm going to use this over and over, and I I don't mean it to be cute or belittle what's happening in the film, but we are after the first of the Infinity Stones in this opera. Yeah, (laughs) that's a good way to look at it. We are after one of the pieces into what's going to be used in a device, which I think is ridiculously named the algorithm, but nonetheless, that is the tool that is what is our time machine, if you will. Yeah. Now, I do have a question for the both of you in regards to this artifact, because at the end of the film, we do see 
them kind of split off and take them to, I guess, go place them and go hide them. Was that right? Is that the assumption? Right. So the assumption that I got was that they split it into three. It's nine pieces. They mm-hmm. split it into three parts. They're each supposed to take their part, go hide it somewhere, and then off themselves so that nobody will ever know. Yeah. No argument here. <laughs> so the results of opera scene uh, here would be our protagonist getting caught, getting tortured to to death nearly, where he has the failsafe, which is the cyanide capsules here. Okay, so talking about the beginning and the end are essentially the same piece in this film. At the end of the film, we're going to talk about taking the algorithm and split, which looks like a camshaft, literally an engine. That's <laughs> no, what I yeah. find interesting inside the earth. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it's split into three mostly equal parts. Mm-hmm. This raid at this opera house is to, by definition, reacquire one ninth instead of being granted one third because it's just one piece. Mm-hmm. So I guess what I would ask is, are these raiders looking for this piece in the algorithm, the minions of, what the hell's his name? Sartor, what's his name? Seder. Seder. Mm -hmm. Are they the minions of Seder, like trying to get the final piece, or have they come to the knowledge of this important puzzle piece on their own, and it's to prevent Seder from getting it? Yeah. Which... Because Seder's man is Seder's man is going to be the one that tries yeah. to kill mm-hmm. the protagonist by the trains. Am I right? Isn't that one of his acolytes? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's the first one you said. Because initially they are working under the guise of that acolyte in the raid, and mm-hmm. then the protagonist is sort of acting as a dual agent, and he's going to use. Sater's lieutenant and their plan to get into the opera house and find this thing. And then once he's got this piece of the algorithm, then I'm assuming he's going to tell them adios and go hide it and not give it to the overlord Sater. Or am I wrong, Nate? <laughs> well, so we're talking about the protagonist that you, are you saying that he already knows what it is? He knows that it's there. He knows what it is and he's going to get it. So and hide it. It was my understanding that he was there thinking that it was a piece of plutonium that they were looking for. So I think he knows he's after something. I don't think right. he knows he what it is. Right. And yeah. when he opens it, he goes, what is that? Yeah, you're right. That's right. So again, yeah, we're in that loop. We're in that loop of like, just it's it, we're just trying to trying to get there, so to speak. No, I like it. No, I, that's yeah. I think I think you're right in in that regard. I mean, those are Seder's men trying to re reclaim so they can go put it back in into the into the hole there. Right, but totally wrong because mm-hmm. it's plutonium and not the actual piece. And they just happen to come to that mm-hmm. because I think it's in the the coat coat storage room right. where they find it, mm-hmm. right? And it's not a piece of plutonium. It's in fact one of the nine pieces of the infinity stones that makes the algorithm. Now, is this, was this put there by either Neil or the other guy or Priya? Yeah, it could be. I, my understanding is that, so the future has placed these pieces in time capsules around the globe for mm-hmm. them to find. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so time capsules is exactly what it is. <laughs> somebody found this piece being the CIA or whatever. And mm-hmm. they're trying to safeguard it, even though they, 
have no idea what it is probably. Yeah. And so the the protagonist is there to meet his handler or the guy, the inside guy, to get this piece to safeguard, but he has no idea what he's safeguarding. Yeah. Well, and then and then in reality is isn't it isn't this also true that unless put together, it's they're useless unless put together, right? So to speak. So I know that there are going to be people that burn through this podcast without having seen this film. And to those of you that do that, you're taking on a very ambitious endeavor. So let me give you one vital piece of information here that I think you'll need to even understand where this conversation is going. The algorithm is essentially a time machine that use is being used by Seder with the most dire consequences at hand. That is to go back and literally destroy all of mankind. Now, there's some discussion around nuclear warheads and blah, 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 and that's kind of in play. But for the larger whole, this time machine is going to be used to, and I mean this, finish mankind. And here's the crux. It goes back to the grandfather paradox that Nate mentioned a while ago. This evil conglomerate believes the antithesis of the grandfather paradox, which states if you murder your grandfather, you then will cease to exist in the time-space continuum. This conglomerate of evil that is pursuing or has already dis- found the algorithm and split it up and hit it in the past from the future so that it can be used in the present. Oh my God, yes. <clears throat> Which is right, yes? Yes. Has the intent of telling the grandfather paradox that that's not in fact truthful and we can still do it without any adherence to what is totally logical. I don't want to believe in that. Okay. I hope I didn't make it worse. Yeah. If I did, just rewind it and listen to it again. Because I think it's all there. No, it's rewind just a little it and elaborate. then fast forward. <laughs> Maybe it'll come out something totally different. Yeah. No, that's true. So we get the tenant pitch from the man, from the man on the boat, which is this operation uh, it's a group that is in charge of protecting these artifacts or placing them and making sure that this aspect of the time isn't interrupted by either satyrs assailants and the turnstiles and whatnot now we get to a scene here and this is kind of the crux of just how i viewed the film which was nolan kind of doing a bond movie with this whole time inversion as a plot mechanism because in the very next scene, and it was our audio clip, this is essentially the Q quartermaster scene that you would get in any Bond movie. Yeah. We're going to the person who's going to tell us about the technology, tell us about these bullets. Um, it's just the thing is, is with a lot, like, a lot, like you said, a lot of these things, Nolan doesn't have the need to dumb down the information or the rate at which it's given to the audience, which whichever camp you're in is either a blessing or a curse to right. you as a film goer. Right. Um, Cause in this scene, we learn about this future am- ammunition that's been, that's been made and they've been sent these artifacts that are essentially what, what are going through what are called, we'll just call them turnstiles. Yeah. So when items go through turnstiles, I was joking to you guys before we hit record, what does a steak taste like that goes through a turnstile? Essentially just it's, it's going to appear the same, it's just the effects of it are reversed. Right. It's what they call inversion. Yeah. So entropy, as I did my science deep dive, <laughs> entropy is when things, think of it as like heating up. Okay. So when he shoots a gun, when you shoot a gun, you pull the trigger and 
it ignites the powder in the shell, which sends the projectile out of the barrel. And as it's going, it's hot as hell coming out, right? <laughs> you know, so that it hits the wall and it cools down. Yep. So reverse is when he catches the bullet, it's he's it's going in reverse time. So it's already cold and it's pulling that heat instead of pushing the heat. Mm -hmm. So it's it's an interesting concept that he did and I think he got it right. And I think and I think scenically, I think we get to kind of see that play out in some interesting ways. I mean, there's a scene later on in the film where he's stuck in a in a burning car, but we see the windows freeze up, right. the effects it, of the, the reverse explosion. Yeah. <laughs> well, what was the line? You you snickered Matt where it was like you might have been the first man to uh die of hypothermia from an explosion or something, which yeah. is which is clever. Those are the elements that I I I like to like see more of you know right. what i mean that's what i love about nolan's films is the science behind them and everything because he tries to do it in such a most realistic fashion as possible yeah and we're playing we're playing with something let's just be frank time travel time inversion we don't know if that shit's real left or right or who's he what's it or uh we don't know how how that works because it's just not a feasible possible science to dive into now jesse how long yes. is this film 225, 2 hours, 25 minutes? Something like that. Yeah. Is the sequence with the bullet that's helping us learn a rudimentary knowledge of the rules in this film too short? Um, Is there not enough there? I think there's... The reason I'm asking is because obviously my answer is yes, but I'm curious to see what you guys think about that. I think there's something there. I think there could be more there, but I think the film does more of that too. Is explain more of the things, because Pri is another kind of expositor of what the hell's right. going on in this things. But this is like, this is about the 13 minute mark in the film. So this revolves around wearing a lead glove because the item, the totem, mm -hmm. if you will, yeah. is irradiated through some version of fission. So you can't just handle it with your bare skin because it'll, it'll radiate you. Mm -hmm. My question through both of the times that I've seen this film now is, can you move something through this entropy or inversion gimmick, but I don't mean that in a bad way, trope that this film is using without knowing that it happened or without being the person that purveyed that action? Because I listened very carefully mm -hmm. to what his teacher in that scene is telling him. And he tries to pick up that bullet, and she says, you can't until it's been dropped. Mm -hmm. Do you have to be the one to drop it? Because if that's the case, then we have some really big problems going forward in this film. It's worth exploring. Yeah. I would say no. I would hope so, too. Otherwise, right. this film doesn't work. Right. Because there's the sequence like where he's fighting backwards. Mm -hmm. where the gun comes into itself. Yeah. And it, you know, it looks like he's pulling it to him. Yeah. Those are his actions, though. But here, they are. That's the, true. Yeah. Here's That's the true. thing: you almost have to split your brain in two because you have to watch a a, a, a scene take place that's moving forwards and backwards at the same time, and you kind of have to like, how do you make that work in your brain? Like that's that's something, fellas. We have to reconcile this. Like for me right now, yeah. If you can just play fast and loose with anybody that's created anything through action at any point in time and all you have to go is go back and invert it we are bordering on it was all a dream for me that is so fast and loose 
But the problem with that is if you're the one who has to carry out the initial action so that you can reverse it with the help of the algorithm some point later, you limit the scope. So I admit, I don't know which way I want to go on that. Yeah. And I don't know if I have an answer yet either. I think she's trying to get back to the, and through that sound in that scene, like the 13 minute mark you said, Jesse. Yeah. She's trying to get to the point where she's allowing the audience, because that's what this is. This is just a narrative piece that yeah. teaches us. Yeah to expand what the algorithm and this inversion technique can affect. I also think what it's trying to do is also explain what can be created through said invention. The ability to manipulate and invert these bullets. She talks about the ability to manipulate and invert other bigger weapons, which become the crux of the film, so to speak. Right. Yeah, and I want to be careful not to get too heavy into the breakdown and critique of this because we said we weren't going to do that this week. We were just going to do that. So yeah. it's, it, on some level, yeah. story-wise, we have an ability to redo actions that exist in the reverse Yeah, through the entropy and inversion thing that Nate just spoke about. It's Oak-tonic and a diet guy. What? You never drink on the job. You're well informed. Uh, pays to be in our profession. Well, I prefer soda water. No, you don't. How's your parachuting? I broke an ankle during basic training. Sings house isn't tall enough to parachute off of. Spongy jumpable. I don't think bungee jumpable is a word. It may not be a word, but it may be your only way out of that place. Into it for that Let's talk about Neil. Let's talk about Robert Pattinson, who's kind of like this aide slash soldier to our protagonist that shows up to do these jobs with him. But what is Neil's placement in this time? Like, we should just let the cat out of the bag right now. Elizabeth Debicki's character, what's her name? Cat? Yep. Has a son. Let the cat out of the bag. Let's see how you did that. <laughs> Man, so clever. You are gifted. You imagine doing this on live stage in front of people and the jokes just come out automatically? Someday. <laughs> so I can only wait. Um, no, yeah. So, yeah, let the cat out of the bag. Uh, she has a son who is, um, you know, we're kind of given lead importance in the final closing lines. It's, it's something I do like about Nolan is the gravity of the final words spoken in a lot of the all the films that we mentioned in our in our top lines. Even Memento is like <laughs> ends with like a very poignant line of the structure of the film. Yeah. Oh, uh, we get a line in there that says sometimes it's the bomb that didn't go off. That's more of a consequence. Like we we don't know about the stuff that happens behind the scenes to avert that. One of the things I thought about you history nerds was what if uh, Ferdinand isn't assassinated that put the events of World War One in motion? You know what I mean? It's the things that don't happen, you know, behind the scenes that, you know, affect the events of history. So Neil's presence in this film, if we look at it from his child perspective, is in, insanely important to how he aids the protagonist. Okay, so I love that. Uh, yes, you're yeah. right. And I want to ask you a question. I think that's a brilliant corollary. Okay. Is the protagonist, in that same metaphor you just used, mm -hmm. is the protagonist or is Neil... Gavrilio Princep in the assassination of Franz Ferdinand relating to this film. Sure. And that's a really good question. Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
because I think we've established the black hand, which would be Priya and all of the nefarious or maybe non-nefarious actions she takes. Mm -hmm. But her role becomes a little bit hazy now too. Yeah. Okay, so for all like, there you guys are probably like, what in the F are they speaking but about? You, you really need to watch this movie before you kind of get into this. Like, this is insane to listen to. The female lead that the protagonist takes a shine to and champions the cause of and sort of gets into the weeds with, is he harboring some sort of romantic interest in her? Why does he champion them? Has more to do with her son. Yeah. And she's very protective of her son. And the father of her son is... The Russian tycoon that holds the keys to the algorithm. Why can't I remember his name? Seder. Jesus, Seder. <laughs> Can you write it up there? Yeah. Seder, okay. He's a palindrome. Yeah, Rodas. Rodas. Seder's that kid's dad and her cat's husband. Are yeah. they married? I think they are married. Mm -hmm. She hates him, but she can't leave him because she's worried what will happen to her son. That's the simple version. Neil, there's a strong likelihood that that little boy we're watching in some version on the time with the latter version of Neil already established and the present version of the protagonist, the little boy is Neil. That's never like on the nose, nail on the hammer. Yeah. Like, But it, come on, it is. Mm -hmm. Christopher Nolan wouldn't take. Of course he did. So I think there's enough clues in place to allude to that too. And here's my question. Yeah. Is the pursuits, and this goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning for me, mm -hmm. is the pursuits of this protagonist then to protect that little boy? It can't. Yeah. Because as I said. he kind of saves the day. Neil sort of saves their bacon at the end, doesn't he? We'll just say Neil dies. If Neil's not there to take a bullet, right. Seder's men win. They don't pull him out of the pit, and that yeah. final well, that final sequence is much different. Yeah, I don't even know if they ever bungee jump into what's his name Priya's husband's domicile. Like, oh, yeah. Uh, you guys need to see this movie before you listen to this podcast. No, I think you're onto something something appropriate. I think the film then, from that perspective of seeing him as Cat's child, um, we must protect this boy because he's integral into this. He has the most important part in this entire operation, this tenant operation. Right. Just now sitting. I'm sorry, Nate. Go ahead. Go ahead. You could even say that Neil's kind of the, he's the one that makes sure things happen the way they happen. Because he shows up just right. like. When, when, when he's needed there and he's sent by the protagonist. Yeah. Okay. So sort of viewed as the willing and capable sidekick in this film. Yeah. I also, just sitting here right now with you two, find it very interesting that he has a name. Yeah. And the protagonist doesn't. Mm -hmm. I wonder if we've identified... Who the protagonist is? And Christopher <laughs> Nolan would fuck with you purposely in that way in this yeah. film. Yeah, sure. It's getting better as it's getting more complex. <laughs> yeah, put that on a t-shirt it's getting better as it gets more confusing can that be on the same one that says i couldn't wait for it to be over i, I was, I was really glad when it was over yeah that's like we, we got to make that okay so yeah neil's there to help him with an operation of priya which they've traced the inverted bullets from that stone from the future stone to an alloy that they make they're arms dealers these are right. bad people again think of it as a bond plot these are like people that they're dealing arms. They're trying to, you know, global annihilation. And that's how I kind of thought of it. I was like, I was like, there's a basic plot in there. Oh, yeah. It's the time inversion that like really makes us start to scratch our heads on why things are, are happening. But it's all kind of tied around this, uh, this piece of art. 
a Goya painting. <laughs> Nate, do you want to go with that for a second? <laughs> the Goya painting. So I don't know if you guys heard a few years ago, there was a story, which I'm guessing he kind of took a little, little uh, inspiration from. Okay. Two guys got a Goya painting and they made a really good drawing of it, a fake. Yeah. And they sold it to a sheik in Saudi Arabia, but he caught on and paid them in uh, photocopied money. Oh, that's a great story. <laughs> Dude, that's why I love you, Nate. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> right. But that's what it is. So there's two paintings. Yeah. And say, so Kat is a art dealer. Yeah. She appraises art. You know, that's her job. And she's very affluent in English society. She's, she's up there. And Sater bought this painting from her that she she knows the artist. She didn't know it was a fake, and he bought it for $9 million. And it's just this little tiny piece of art. Is that how they met, or they already knew each other? I think they were already married. Okay. Personally. So I think she acquired it for Sater as a gift. Right. But then there's a whole other element here that we couldn't figure out, but I do want to blow everybody's mind. Okay. The art dealer that she bought it from, what's that person's name? Apero. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which it's is opera backwards. Which is opera backwards. So <laughs> let me write it. And we actually did have a bit of a discussion about that, and no one in the room was smart enough to figure out what that meant. Other than there is definitely ties to the opera in this, and it's not only the initial raid, but there is a discussion between the protagonist and Sater about do you like the opera? So it's not that it doesn't go unfulfilled or did it's you, some throwaway line. Did you notice that scene like a wry smile tickles the corner of his face? Like, I think at that moment they realize we've crossed paths before. I didn't notice that. Yeah. Did not. You did. At least Kenneth, Kenneth Branagh is like, when he says, do you like opera? Right. And, and he goes, and he should because he is the future satyr. Yeah. Oh my gosh. The actual satyr is dead in the actual timeline. That's why he's missing after the boat. Yeah. So it's, him, he's already been back. Wait, but, what? Break that down, Nate. Go. <laughs> All right, time travel. Yeah, <laughs> Sater, who? So they go on a holiday to Vietnam, and she leaves with her son to shore to go look at whatever, and he disappears. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows where he is. Oh yeah, that's right. And then there he is, all of a sudden, and. Yeah, I forgot about that piece yeah. of exposition. You don't think that's the same Seder that's returned from wherever the missing was in, in Vietnam? Doubtful. It's Vietnam. Mm, I don't know. <laughs> no, it's doubtful. Like, it, it's, right. I mean, if it said he got lost in, you know, um, well, so I'm, Salt Lake, Utah, you probably wouldn't worry. But if you get lost in right. Vietnam, that's a bit bigger deal, right? Mm -hmm, right. Yeah. But it, he's missing because, spoiler alert, she kills him. Yeah. But, it, you know, it's, it's, again, that loop that he's going through these different loops. And so there's multiples of them. Oh my gosh. So when we get going. the turnstile effect, are we watching the Captain America fighting Captain America as another Captain America watching from the backgrounds in Endgame? I oh, think we do. Yeah. But the difference being, I think there's still consequence in this version of that story. Right. Cap was able to go back and just essentially have a life with Peggy Carter and he, and he just erased an entire branch. The fact that we're dealing with a sequential loop, I like that we're calling it a loop, are these events still have to happen the way they do. Right. Okay, so Nate, then I love that you brought this up. If Sater knows that, 
then how at any point in this story is the protagonist able to get over on him? Seder knows what? That, if it's the future Seder, uh-huh. then he knows all of the events that are going to happen. Yes, but he doesn't know when he's going to die. He's he's banking on his cyanide pill that he's going to blow the world up. So he's going to die at that moment anyway, but he wasn't banking on Cat being the one to kill him. Yeah, no, I agree with that. But wh- <laughs> well, I think we'll come back to that. I think I think we'll come back to that. It's a, we're not quite quite there. <laughs> we're not quite there yet. But let's get to you know we've established the art and the theft of this, which is going to kind of grant us access to Seder. You know, it's always like you know I joked about Truth Bond. I talk about Bond a lot. It's always what's my ticket to get to the villain? What's my entrance pass, so to speak? In Skyfall, it was meeting what's her name that had ties to to Silva that took him to that island. Don't touch them. Hell happened here. It hasn't happened yet. Real quick, I know we don't want to get too much into the aesthetic of the film, but do you do you th- do you think Nolan filmed this two times, once going backwards and once going forward? Had to have. And the amount of choreography needed to stage a fight where one person's going one way and one person's going the other way. You know what I love about and that this guy's too? like, "What do you want from me?" <laughs> I love it. Can I say something that blew my mind watching it this time about yeah, it? Yeah. We're gonna get two, as Jesse would say, fisticuff sequences here in this art chamber vault that is hidden away in an airport in Oslo. And what we're going to have is the protagonist and Neil coming to blows with a masked person in black. Now I'm going to tell you both that I knew upon initial viewing that that was another version of the protagonist. I did did it. But what's cool about it is, okay, they're fighting in opposite directions. So one of them is fighting from the time that they're from backwards, and the other one is fighting in real time now. So nothing's really working, and you're just kind of getting like rolling around. But here's what blew me away, and it actually happens in this film. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I want everybody to think about this. Like, if you're fighting with someone and you throw a punch, okay, then that's already been recorded in history. So if you play that in reverse, that looks like I'm pulling back a punch. So while I'm doing that in forwards or reverse, there's movement. The only place to get over on the opposition in that fight with you going forwards in reverse and them going in real time in reverse or whatever, however you want to play that out, would be the spaces of non-movement in between. Yeah. So between the time I punch and Nate dodges and then we gather... That's the only time to make any hay with any new aggressive movements in the fight that's happening now. Mm -hmm. And if you watch that, it's how they fight. Yeah. There's a little bit here and there where one starts to get ahead, but like it is so brief and then gone. And now you're back to the loop. That's crazy. Yeah. And Nolan, so what you said, Jesse, Mm -hmm. did he film it forwards and backwards? For sure. Yeah. 
and it looks like this very strange, like the part where the cloaked Denzel, I'm sorry, um, it's a protagonist. Son. It's a son. Sort of done on purpose because they even have the same mannerisms, don't they? Yeah. They even sound the same. Yeah. It's like rolling across the floor, scooting as someone's on top of him, kind of wrestling him, and he's it's like shimmering on his back across the floor. It's like, is he having a seizure? But no, he's fighting in his time with what happened at that time versus himself. And that is such a mind fuck. Well, isn't it's that, awesome. Isn't that cool? It's literally it's really a, cool. It's a fight scene we've never seen before. Ever. Yeah. So uh, just the amount of work going into planning that just gives me a headache. And kudos to Nolan for, you know, sticking to his guns to do it authentically like that. But let's talk about the turnstile because this is the kind of the crux of the film. So... There's a few of these placed throughout the timeline. These are created, if I'm not mistaken, by Seder's men, right? Essentially, they're a rotunda elevator. Yeah. Yes, they're created by Seder, and that's conduits to move back and forth throughout the time loop. Yeah. They're the Rotas. Mm -hmm. Is that the company name, Nate? Well, it's Seder backwards. <laughs> no, I know, no, no, I know. No, I know, but... Do you, know, you notice on the door? I did. Yeah, Rodos. Said, said Rodos. So is that the company? Is that what he like? Yes, I'm guessing. Manufactured them yeah. as this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So when you go through these turnstiles, I mean, you literally you come out going through the timeline, just like as Matt says, right. like in reverse. And you have to make sure you see yourself go in and come out the other side before you go in. That way, you know that there's a closure to your loop. Right. You see, these are <laughs> questions we asked ourselves on Endgame, where we were just like, "What the fuck is even happening in this movie?" Because there's no loop. There's multiple branches. I mean, I think it is, albeit refreshing, that if we are dealing with this closed-looped theory, I mean, there is some finality to that. I mean, we right. can't play fast and loose with the things that happen. They still have to play out. Right. Well, and is, to do it in a circular elevator that closes, literally closes, is such, whether subconscious or otherwise recognized by the audience, Nolan trying to do his audience a solid. Like watching you, letting you see the loop close. Uh -huh. The door closes. You can see it literally close. So like this piece of this sequence is finished in this loop. So when I see this mechanism in effect, then I my, my brain as a viewer starts imagining, well, shit, if you put that car through something like that, or if you put that gun, or if you put this or this and that, how hard do people on the receiving end of that, how difficult is that to be in a world with that? And I think that's the villain's end, end game is to create a scenario where he creates entropy right? It, the, and it implodes everything. Right. The algorithm is an inverted bomb. Yeah. It's going to reverse time in and, a way. Yeah. <laughs> Which it also, you know, being that we are in a James Bond-esque type plot, Every Bond plot, I, I want to take over the world. Um, you know, I want to irradiate uh, all of Fort Knox's gold. Um, but here, I mean, it's it's literally something detrimental to the plot. I mean, I'm really going to create a, a version of the bomb because I'm dying to undo and erase everything. That's interesting. You know what I mean? It's not taking over the world to rule over rubble. Right. That, that's Matt's. That's Matt's always crux. <laughs> <laughs> who wants? Who would want to do that? Yeah, no one. <laughs> All but right. that's not this villain's trope. No, no, no. Let's he, he, like, in a Thanos kind of way, and he actually even uses the same argument, Jesse. Yeah. He says, when we're at the crisis moment in the film and the protagonist is in the bowels of some cave trying to save the algorithm, mm -hmm. he asks Seder, why are you doing this? And Seder says, 
because the oceans rose and the rivers run dry, which is a direct expression of we ran out of natural resources. That is Thanos to the letter. Realistic Thanos, or right. so to speak, yeah. Right. right. <laughs> the Nolan Thanos. Yes. Hey, can you're you, going, pour, can you pour, pour, pour me some of the blue? So Nolan does something in this film to help differentiate, you know, in, inverted versus regular, and it's through a color scheme of red and blue. And we got the same thing with whiskey going on here, too. Thank you, Nate. Make it happen, Nate. So this is Balcones. This is true blue. Oh, that's that is different. Yeah. Does it There's, taste? Does it taste inverted? <laughs> kind of. A little bit. That earthy taste is at the beginning, and the honey's at the back. No, it's not. That's a total lie. That would be amazing. It would be. <laughs> huh? It's a lot sweeter to me. Sweeter starting. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. All righty, guys, we're making some hmm. we're making some good progress here. So as are we <laughs> from a certain point of view. <laughs> yeah. So as the bond plot, you know, takes effect, he's stolen his art. So now he has his buying ticket to go meet Sater. So Kat's going to take him. And then it gets into this whole kind of like love triangle. Are you sleeping with him? Are you sleeping with my wife? So to speak thing. Such a good line. Yeah. Have you slept with my wife? Yeah. Not yet. Such <laughs> Uh, you want to? If this was a, a dick swinging contest, buddy, I'm all in. If this was Sean Connery, he'd be like, "Oh yes, I've done it twice already." <laughs> <laughs> Come here, Monty. <laughs> but it, it eventually leads to a conversation where they kind of agree to kind of get on terms. I, I joked with you guys that you know all these spy films kind of like at some point you know show the villains kind of working together, unbeknownst to each other's ulterior motives. So it gets to this crux where uh, protagonist is going to help him still. We're still calling it plutonium right now. We'll just call it uh, artifact two, two plutonium two forty one. Yeah, plutonium two forty one. Yeah, we'll call it artifact two thirds. Well, well, remember, it's the same artifact from the it's upper the house. same one. Yeah, it's the same one. At this point, that's what we still think is happening in this film. Yeah, is that we are trying to prevent Sater from acquiring this plutonium to equip his nuclear arsenal and launch the world into nuclear holocaust. Right. That's what we think. Even though <laughs> the teacher with the bullet at the beginning told the protagonist, yeah, it's much larger. We didn't really expand that. We still think this Seder fellow. And by the way, while I'm at it, do you guys like Branna as a Russian? Yeah. I think he's I, pretty good at it. I like Kenneth Branna in just about everything. Like, I, I've Except been... the director's chair. Because <laughs> you don't like Thor oh. or you don't like Hamlet. Also true. But I just watched Wild Wild West this week, and he's the bad guy, Arliss Loveless in that. And he's he just he just chews the scenery as a bad guy. Like he's really good at it. You know what I meant to stop at and ask both of you? Have either one of you seen Dead Again? Mm-mm. Oh man, we might have to do that. Okay. That's him, like that's young him. Okay. And that's a little bit of a mind-bending time deal, too. Okay. No, yeah, I think he's a great thespian. I mean, whether it's Gildery Lockhart or just like any number of these people. Yeah. God, we're I, getting I, into thespians now, too. This, we are <laughs> so formal this week. There's no going back. I love okay, it. Okay. So we're going to steal Artifact one-third um, and help Sater out, you know, with, uh, as part of his plan with this convoy chase heist sequence uh, with with Neil showing up. Like, as you're right, Neil shows up when, you know, I got to kind of put things into place. He's a good ally, a sidekick, as Matt said. Uh, and as this convoy chase 
takes place. You know, we get the item, but then this is where the film and I had been with the mm-hmm. first time I saw it, I was waiting for this because I thought the the whole film up to this is almost a big exposition dump set among scenes. And you're waiting for what the crux is of why things act the way they are. And we've seen clues. We saw the turnstile in Oslo, but we're waiting for the moment to happen. And it's on this highway when we see cars going reverse backwards and things playing out in, in motion when we realize there's a technology at place here that's making these things happen. I mean, a car is just not going to like flip and undo itself. And you see the protagonist's face. He's like, the hell was that? Right. <laughs> Unbeknownst to him, he, he, he knows, but he just, this version of him, he hasn't gone through it yet. He hasn't gone through the scene that we're about to play here in a second. Yeah, you set it up perfectly. I don't know if we want to just go ahead and play the scene or you want to get to where the, the turn that you sort of forecasted here is. But um, Well, let's do it. All right. If you're not telling the truth, she dies. I don't know what you're talking about. You left it in the car, not the fire truck, right? I told you that. Tell me now, is it really in the BMW? I don't know. Tell me or I'll shoot her again. Listen to me, three. I can help you. Two. Don't. This one's a bullet to the head. No. One. Two. Three. Okay. Okay. The car. The BMW, I left it in the BMW. Okay, so this the scene is in, intense and it's insane, and there's a lot of important things being told to you. And we turned the subtitles on because we, we need to know what's being said. So we're differentiating between blue and red and kind of like what's past and what's present. So our protagonist is in blue. Yeah. Right? In real time? Like, our, oh, I what thought he was red. Red is real time. Okay, red is real time. The blues, the other blues, the other blues, oh, right. the other side of the room there. So this is going backwards as he as he watches it go backwards, um, and Kenneth Branagh, the other version of him, is hiding and speaking to him behind the microphone. So he's kind of telling him, "He like I want to know where that artifact is," and then shoots shoots it in reverse. In your guys's best estimation, how does this scene play out? Because it's still kind of fuzzy to me, albeit an important one. And I still don't know if I have like the full uh, recollection of, of of what's happening, to the best of your abilities. Go ahead, tackle that first, Nate, and then I'll go. All right, this scene, which was really good, my bit. Um, you know, it's it's a really interesting scene. It's something. It, it reminded me of a little bit of Twin Peaks. Oh, with, the, <laughs> with the he backwards speech like and everything. The I, guy. I thought David Lynch right now too. Yeah, especially with the colors. But it was. It was good. Um, can we just like analyze it? Yeah, go ahead. Um, they're after the highway scene. The protagonist is taken in, and they're interrogating him to where that piece went. Yeah, right. The algorithm, the last piece, mm-hmm. because Kenneth Branagh already knows what it is. Yeah, and but uh, you know, it, it's a hard one to decipher, but it. It makes sense in my head. It's it's it's, it's a backwards <laughs> and forwards it, it interrogation is. in a conjunction with the satyr and the protagonist. They've decided to steal what we think is plutonium, but we come to find is 
another piece, and I don't know if it's the final piece, but another piece of the algorithm. Mm-hmm. And it's being transported via fire truck. Uh, police truck. Police truck, yeah. sorry. Yeah. And actually, you know what I thought was really cool in that was the way that he enters in. That little contraption that he puts up on the top of that that mm-hmm. blows a hole in it that's just man-sized enough, that was cool. Okay, so... Man, I want to I ask you this because we haven't done Nolan yet, and this is just a personal thing, not thing. Do you like these... Because this is something else I like about him is just these this propensity to do these action sequences and, like, really set up trucks close and smash into them and, like, do it and, like... No computers, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, this definitely had a feel from the Dark Knight too, in that same convoy bit with mm. um, that sequence, like halfway through. Yeah, sure. I, I I'm just, fine. You know, you said something a couple weeks ago, and I think it ties into what you what you just asked me. And I had never heard this criticism before, but the criticism you said is sometimes Nolan is criticized for not being able to pull off an effective action sequence. Yeah. I can't think of anything that I've maybe ever heard that's more ridiculous than that. Is that Who the a, hell says that? Is that a, literally a criticism lobbied because we are used to an action sequence derived from a computer? You know what I mean? I mean, if you take the king of it, which would be like, ugh, and I say that sort of tongue-in-cheek just to make an example, but Michael Bay and put it up against Christopher Nolan, one of those is much better than the other. Yeah. And one of them built an entire robot series around it, and it sucks. Yeah. So I, that's a that's a strange criticism, and a couple things I think are starting to resonate in Tenant. Christopher Nolan has certain things that he likes. He likes to play fast and loose with time and space. Mm-hmm. He likes his heists, and he likes his highway chases. Yeah. Two of those three things I really like. Yeah. I don't always love the time heist or the the time bit, mm-hmm. but I love heist films and I love highway chases. Yeah. This is a kind of a heist film, heist it spy is. film of sorts. Yeah, I mean, if you go all the way back to the French Connection, we've talked about that a lot. Mm-hmm. It's fun to watch cars and people on cars at high speeds. What's wrong with that? Yeah. So, I, I I think what you asked me is, do I like it? Yeah. Yes, I do like it. I just we're just in such a weird world where everything compared to Wonder Woman last week, where everything oh, is shit. just so so fun. Okay, so I'm glad you brought that up. But let's let's do this. Okay, okay? let's right. do this right now. Yeah. Have you seen Wonder Woman now, Nate? Oh, yeah. Let's compare the convoy in Wonder Woman, okay. where she's catching fucking bullets with her with her magic lasso, as Trevor Steve is about to somehow <laughs> dodge <laughs> it. Good, yeah, right. Yeah, you're right. And all of that nonsense versus this, yeah. And somebody in this room defend the criticism that Nolan isn't good at action sequences compared to a movie that cut its teeth being an action film. Yeah, Wonder Woman. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We should we we should do that. Like on a video is put up those moments of Wonder Woman 84 and this and this one. Yeah. Screen by like dual screen. It's just, just there's just something to the authenticity of like absolutely. actually doing something in camera. I mean, yep. Nolan put IMAX cameras on World War II Spitfire airplanes. Like right. who does that? Right. <laughs> now it's a point and click. Someone goes to a computer points and clicks and they did it in re- and they're rendering it. I mean, and it probably costs more to make. Someone who cares about authenticity yeah. versus just getting it in the can. That's Im- and I think that's important. And yeah. yeah, you the, think the current, it's the hugely current, important. The current state of film, like that aspect is being lost in the muddle of... To that. Of, <laughs> to authenticity. <laughs> in film. <laughs> Across the board. Yeah, no, yeah. Alrighty, so we go through a turnstile, and this is like where the film for me, like I, I was kind of starting to gear up with what 
the technology was capable of. So we're going to go through the turnstile. We're going to take cat through because she's got this inverted bullet. So I'm going to write cat and bullet. But then pro tag is going to go through back to the convoy chase. Because it, look, there's all these rice miles being shown that you don't get on initial viewing until he's going through the same thing. So the protagonist is going to go go through and meet up with them in the convoy chase to make sure that this takes place, so to speak. Realizing that he's he's the guy a part of that. A couple things took place in the sequence that I liked. I like this idea of inverted oxygen. If you go through a turnstile, you can't breathe the same way you did going through time. That's an right. interesting concept. Right. You're, you're, Wouldn't it be di- carbon dioxide you'd right. try to you're, be breathing? You're expelling it all, so your lungs would basically just deflate. Yeah. That's and cool. I, and I like that. And, and this is a concept that is just like running through my brain right now. Like what else like is just different about, you know, going through something like this and he gets in a car and I asked you guys like is inverted driving. If he turns the wheel left, it's going to go right. The physics of the reversing of that is it's all backwards. When you said that, you know what I thought of? And this is not to be gross, but yeah. I meant it. What about going to the bathroom? Yeah. Well, so you could also even call this like a little, you have to kind of, this is the fantastical part of the movie too. Yeah. If you think about it, your liver would probably release all the poisons instead of filtering them. <laughs> so you'd probably die pretty fast, but that's the part you have to play loose and fast with. You know? I like the potential of inverted things. Yeah, absolutely. Not necessarily bullets because that's been established, but inverted driving, inverted Kissing, inverted lovemaking. Right. Like, what is? Oh my god! Like, what? Like, what? Like, yeah. What is the like? What, what does that look like? Like it's. it's Ooh, let's. I want to see. <laughs> Nolan, tenant two, make it happen. <laughs> lovemaking on the rocks. Yeah. So authentic, authentic lovemaking. And the way wow, it, and the way it plays out on screen is just is just totally fascinating. It's almost like playing a video game, and someone like fucks up your controls and now instead of accelerate on X, it's R1 and you don't know what you're doing on the thing. Yeah. So it's an adjustment for the protagonist. And I like that. Uh, So he's kind of, kind of gotten dealt the upper hand by Seder, which I'm kind of with you, Matt. I kind of think Seder does have a bit of an advantage on him throughout this. And I don't think it's until the following sequence when they finally get up one on him, which is we got to get a little in front of him. And then meet him like right here. Yeah, like he's always one step ahead of, ahead of all these people. And they had these nice, interesting like oxygen partition uh, sequences, which I, I think are, are are pretty interesting too. But what do you guys think? Are are we are we done here? Do you want to s- s- stick with this? Yeah, yeah, we're going good. Okay, flowchart's looking good. So what happens next, right? Is we we go fourteen days. Backwards. Backwards. I think another thing for people... So a lot of people were turned off on this movie because of the science behind it. People just didn't understand it, I think. And I think that's what turns off a, a certain audience for Nolan's film. This is not a movie for the what I call the atypical summer movie audience. No, no. That goes there for the, Michael Bay shit. Right. This is a smart movie that you have to pay attention to. Yeah. You kind of have to understand. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people need to understand also, and you're like, so the cat that you see in that whole chase sequence, Mm -hmm. she's actually in real time. Yeah. So 
Mm-hmm. You know, the, that inverted bullet is, is doing the opposite. It's actually tearing her apart instead of healing her. That's why she has to go back 14 days to heal. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, you're right. You Absolutely. Know? And I find this fascinating. So now we're leading up to, and I want you both to do your best interpretations on what this is. The temporal pincer. Yeah. The way it's been described in my research is it's literally a pincer. It's literally attacking from two ways, like a lobster or a crab, and we're going to kind of meet up in the middle. Right. So that's kind of what we're leading up to, which is this kind of finale sequence. And we, we forgot the scene with Michael Caine, who's essentially kind of like M. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Who kind of gives him a, a big dump about information about this explosion that happened in... Oh, goodness. I have it here. But it's it's in it's it's a land that's that Sat uh, that Sater owns. It's it's like Stolislavsk's twelve. It's the town he grew up in. Yeah. yeah. So in Cold War era Soviet Union, there were industries or towns built around clandestine actions that this Communist Party was partaking in. So essentially, the labor force that was doing X, Y, or Z was given a makeshift town to live in. And then when the fall of communism happened in Russia, then what happened? And that's where Seder comes to a position of power. Essentially, a scavenger that finds an item that is either what launches him into greatness by luck or is set there by himself to be found as a younger version of himself from the future. Mm-hmm. Either one of them work, and maybe it's a combination of both. But, okay, so this is getting the temporal thing too, Jesse, and yep. so I'm, I'm getting there. Oh, yeah, go ahead. The now has to happen before you can have the future. But from the future's point of view, the now then definitionally becomes the past. Right. So that being said, in the now, when young Sater finds whatever item, which I think is plutonium from a bomb that blew up at a nuclear warhead development facility that was turned into a short little town by the Communist Party in China, in, China, in, in Russia. Yeah. That then is probably levied in the present to some economic position of power, which launches Sater to what's going to be this arms dealing magnate from the future's point of view once the plat once the past or in that case the present has established an economic feasible way to um, ascend to a better life Seder then continues that process by allowing the younger version of himself to continually find more lucrative items and this becomes really important the communication element is the hiding of the present in the now by the past. And that's the temporal pincher. If we're talking about a pincher at an obtuse angle, there's plenty of room in between them. As we move to acute and then to the same linear projection, all of the stuff that's past present and everything else is squeezed out to the same point. Yeah. So I think the temporal pincher is appropriate, although it's a bit mind-bending. The past and the present squeeze, I'm sorry, the past and the future 
squeeze together until they can join and become the now, thus the present. That's how I would describe it. It's the closing of the loop. Yeah. I just did that in like four words. Fucking. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You're both right. You're both right. That's exactly what it is. And we get, we get, and Nolan tries to help us out in this with colors. We got blue and red. We got blue and red whiskey here. I'm liking this blue so far. Uh, and then he also does it with time, inverted time. We have 10 minutes to do this opera. And it's done in a military operation, which makes it exciting for the movie-going audience. Yeah. So one is going to be moving backwards, and one's going to be moving forwards. And we're, um, we're going to get right into it. Well, you asked us. I'm going to ask you any other thoughts on this temporal <clears throat> pincher. What about this for you? I think we've seen it a couple times already before. Oh, that's good. Let's hear. Yeah, I think we've seen it already with, hang on, I got to go to, I just, this, this is a film where you need notes, but notes I, I think uh, Seder is, uh, has uh, done this. The, I think the car chase sequence is another example of a temporal pincer. And then the first time um, uh, we see uh, Neil and the protagonist successfully capture the final piece of the algorithm, that's part of it as well. Uh, so it's it's at play in this film, and it's not until this moment when we get that word from uh, Ives, who's this you know kind of and these are these are uh, Priya's men, right? Mm-hmm. They're the protagonists, men. They're they're part of the organization of Tenet. We're gonna get back into it. This this <laughs> this loop is gonna loop all the way back to that at the end of that, right? Because he's the creation of he this is, whole thing. He, he is the the CEO of Tenet, I guess you could say. Everybody got that? <laughs> <laughs> All righty. So let's kind of diverge here into two timelines of two parts of the plan. So plan A, let's let's talk about Cat and what Cat's role is in this temporal pincer movement, which is I got to be there on the boat in Vietnam uh, to essentially kill my my husband and, and make sure that happens when it does. Our men in their blue and the red are going to go through here and not to make diffuse the bomb, but to make sure the bomb goes off. But they have to capture the parts of the algorithm and then thus go into, you know, hiding them and offing themselves, which sounds like a raw deal if you ask me. <laughs> yeah. But let's let's uh, let's talk about cat first. Man, I want to ask you just from a story perspective, or at least this, is this a warranted goal of what? Sater's kind of been after if I'm dying of inoperable pancreatic cancer, which we find out around this time. And I have this time engine to just totally destroy the world, but I'm dying anyway. If I can't have you, no one's going to have you. Do you, do you like that? I, I, as a story mechanism, I know you like things about that. Is that done well for you? No. The idea that if I can't have you, no one will have you is a little bit mailed in and really reheated. Where that becomes salvageable as that argument that Seder makes continues, we come to find out that the her he's speaking about and sometimes is cat and sometimes is her as the earth or humanity. Mm-hmm. So if you take it at face value, which is her as cat, it's not hateable. But it's just, it's just, it's been done to death. And, but I don't really, I mean, we're talking the subplot like 16 and there's 15 more that I care about than how much Seder and Kat really love each other. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Oh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. let's not spend too much more time banging around on that because 
mostly none of us cares and he's a bastard and abusive and we can go on. I only ask that because a lot of the plot lines in Nolan's films usually will themselves back to something very simple. Well, cause, but the thing about it is like at face value, I just think that that's an odd placement and maybe I don't really want to develop this, which is fair. If you take it as if I can't have you, no one will. And he means cat. But although he says that to her, mm -hmm. he's speaking about something much larger. Yeah. And the world for him, Seder, isn't worth living in if he can't have her. Yeah. And so because of that, nobody gets the world either. Yeah. And so face value, no. But when you dig a little bit deeper, pull back a couple layers of that onion, yeah. I actually do like it. But you've got to put a little bit of thought in to get there. What do you think, Nate? This is like, like this is Inception. I mean, this is, is. Uh, as complex as Inception is, it boils down to a little pinwheel at the end of the film. Right. He makes that statement, you know, the greatest sin that he ever committed was bringing a son into this world yeah. that isn't going to last. Yeah. You know. But that's almost done, not in a bastard way, almost right. out of mercy, right? Right. Like, right. what did I bring this it, young person into? Right. It, it, it almost comes to me as like, it's to show how powerful he is, but also to show that he's kind of come to terms in a way. Humanizing your villain right. is a great way to make a much more compelling villain. And for a guy that's not really very likable, I think we're starting to humanize him now. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. All right. Let's get to the actual temporal <laughs> pincer movement. You guys like the timeline? How it looks here. <laughs> we got blue and red and we have 10 minutes. To accomplish that. Mm -hmm. Now, there's not a lot to dissect because we kind of just already talked about what their goal is and what to do it. I'll just ask just, just a personal question. Did you guys kind of like how this played out? I mean, it's certainly unique in that when we get to the five-minute mark, they have a built-in distraction, and we literally get to see a building both implode and deplode at the same time. So cool. That was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> like, so... This is this is interesting, and the, this is the aspect that if a sequel, or can you imagine this in a video game? My God, like how would that even work? <laughs> but uh, the idea of having to work as a team to do things one way and the opposite way, and like you said, like a pincer, meet in the middle to close the loop, is fascinating to me. It is, and you have to remember that blue team did it already while red teams being briefed on the boat. Yeah. Those shipping containers there. They, exactly. They already know what's happened, but they won't show them anything because mm -hmm. they don't want to change the timeline. Yeah. Well, and don't forget the third team that's involved, which is the protagonist and Eve's yeah. Yeah. working clandestinely in real time. Yeah. Outside of either of those two right. teams. Yeah. The splinter unit. <laughs> Do we need the, the splinter <laughs> and the temporal pincher? Holy hang on. Smokes. Splinter unit is going right down the middle. But then we got to come back to Neil, Robert Pattinson, and his uh, importance to the plot of this film when he's really going in as blue team. But as he goes through the turnstile, he's actually helping Splinter Unit by literally taking one for the team. <laughs> and he's the one that's going to open the door for them, but also save the protagonist. Because in this version of the story, Neil is, not the, is important to the completion. The protagonist still has to complete the deed. Right. He's there to make sure the protagonist becomes tenant. Yeah. I just got to be honest with you. As complex as everything has been thus far, to me, this is the, 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 the most clear thing of the film for me, 
is the role of you said it and Neil said it, call it fake, call it, I call it reality. Uh, these things have to happen. What's happened, happened. And there's no going about that. And I like that about time travel. I don't like how we in Endgame play so fast and loose with how we can alter and change what's happened. In this idea, we're doing that, but at the same time, we can't undo what's happened. It's right. we kind of have to let it play out. It's almost like we're playing like a scenario. It's like it's like playing house when you're a kid. I mean, you're just it's it's almost like a game, which is is that why he's called the protagonist? Like it's almost kind of like that. One of the things that happens in time travel that they're addressing here is you can look back at the pieces of the process that worked and do what you need to do in order to protect them and then around the periphery change the other parts so that that can be exacerbated to a greater element. Of all of the things that we banged on Endgame about, the part that was right mm -hmm. was the Doctor Strange part. Yeah. I've seen all of these different realities, yeah. which would be the Neil character essentially now. Yeah. And I know what we need to do in order to give us at least a shot. We have to protect this piece of it. And what you just said, Jesse, is we need to protect the protagonist's rise to active instead of passive hero in our story. He has to eventually ascend to the position where he makes the difference instead of just be willing participant along the road. Yeah, Neil knows that. And again, it goes back to what we talked about earlier. Is this Neil's film as named protagonist? It could be from a certain point of view. That part's working. And that part for me also worked in Endgame. Yeah. A lot of that other stuff didn't, but that part did. So, and frankly, I, it wasn't as clear to me as either it is for either of you. Sure. It's mostly clear. Mm -hmm. But I do recognize what we're trying to do. Neil is all-knowing, omniscient to a certain extent in this film. That's why he has to be the kid. Right. He has to be. Yeah. He's seen the whole damn thing. Yeah. Right. He has to be. Yes, exactly. You nailed it, Jesse. Perfect. Good. I'm not the woman who could find love for you even though you scarred her on the inside. I'm the vengeful bitch you scarred on the outside. Get some sunscreen scorching sound effect. If the gun bullet didn't kill you, that fall certainly killed you. Boy, he hits his head hard. Brutal, yeah. And so the film kind of comes to a nice conclusion, but a lot of stuff being told to us that the dialogue's almost in like forwards and reverse. This is the end. This is the end of a beautiful friendship. You know what I mean? The beginning of the end of the beautiful friendship. But I'll, I'll go ahead and let them finish it up. Hey, you never did tell me who recruited you, Neil. How many guess by now? You did. Only not when you thought. You have a future in the past. Years ago for me, years from now for you. You've known me for years. For me, I think this is the end of a beautiful friendship. But for me, it's just the beginning. Let me get up to some stuff. You're gonna love it. You'll see. This whole operation's a temporal pincer. Boom! Yours! 
You're already halfway there. I'll see you at the beginning, friend. All right, there's a lot going on there. Briefly, just surmise what you can best decipher of what's what's taking place there. The conversation between the two? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what that tells me is that Neil was sent back by him to make sure that everything happens the way it happens. That the protagonist recruits him, they become best friends, that's why he knows he likes Diet Coke and doesn't drink on the job. Yeah. You know, that... It's the end of a beautiful friendship because Neil has to go back through the turnstile to go make sure he takes the bullet. Yeah. You know, it, it's sad. Like, you know, I'll be the first to admit it brought a tear to my eye. <laughs> <laughs> Love you, Nate. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Matt? Uh, like, how does this kind of all kind of come around? Because essentially, not to use our loop metaphor, but it is kind of coming full circle in a way. I don't know if I recognize Neil's brilliance in this or the protagonist's brilliance in this. The reason I would say that, the scene that's going to follow is going to move the protagonist to a much more active position and see him in a way where he knows what's going on before it happens in a way that we don't see most of the film. Mm Mm-hmm. He's good in the moment and good at like crisis on in hand or on hand right now and solving those problems for the protagonist. Neil, the whole film has been one step ahead of him, whether it's bungee jumping or you don't drink um, alcohol in the job or mm-hmm. I have to go ahead and roll the dice on this because I got to pull them and this thing out of this debris, whether it's isn't, or not. Isn't that the other one too where he says, who was it the, on the other thing? And he doesn't tell him. Yeah. 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 Right. So in that scene where they are in the art vault in that airport yeah he sees the protagonist because he demasks him he Mm -hmm. takes the helmet off and sees him and he can't let the other real-time protagonist know because it's going to screw things up so neil is essential as essentially a conscience for the protagonist in this film that character is really really working for me and i didn't know that character was going to work for me until we went through this today and I have a lot more respect for Neil and realize that how much more important he is in that film than I initially gave him credit for. I don't know if that answered your question. But no, I that's, that's, uh, that's great. So let's get to the final sequence here. So we're actually going to cut back to an event that happens somewhere around up here at the top, which is Cat dropping off. We'll call Neil, we'll just call him quote unquote Neil uh, off at school. And they're, they're, they want to go to like this Pompeii vacation, which sounds amazing, by the way. I'd love to go check out Pompeii. I'm just saying right. that right now. Uh, and then we get the protagonist who's in the back of the car who takes out, is it Priya or Priya? Priya. Who's going to assassinate Kat right. uh, because of... She, you just, she knows too much. Yeah, because <laughs> of all of this here. But for in order for the events to go in motion, thus the protagonist is part of the right. loop. You got to remember, this is the cat who's already been shot. Yeah. You know, so she knows everything. Mm-hmm. You know, in this take, so this is where the scar is important, isn't it, Nate? Yeah, right. Because we know she's been through it and healed. Right. The mm-hmm. the loop is, you know, it, this is where it, it came full circle that the loop was a circle yeah. to me. You know, that she remembers seeing somebody dive off the boat. Well, that was her. Yeah. So the loop is closed. So now the other one's going through the exact same thing that just happened to her. Yeah. And now she's off with her son. A couple things, because I think we're, we're pretty close to the end of this here. I have two kind of big questions for the two of you that I'd like you guys to go into. 
Uh, Nolan and endings, how he ends a film. Other than the three Batman films that I think both all three have three concrete endings, they always end with a phrase that alludes to more. In this one, it's the bomb that didn't go off. So then now we're all thinking, I mean, this is a scenario where we're thinking that Neil is Kat's son. In reality, if that wasn't true, I mean, you can interpret this film in an entirely mm. different way than we just did. Yeah, sure. for sure. Which is crazy. I mean, it's in Memento. It's like, isn't the last time Memento, oh, where was I? Yeah. And like the film ends and we're in the middle. Where was I? And in the prestige, it's like, it's like you want to be fooled about, you know, magic and these this reverse and the duplication. Interstellar. I yeah. mean, like, where do we go from there yeah. once like we've reestablished <laughs> humanity? Um, I like that about his endings. I do too. We've talked a lot about endings on films, and in one director in particular, Alfred Hitchcock, who was often criticized about how he ended his films, and I'm in the camp that says Hitchcock ended the films perfectly every single time. Uh, you leave them wanting more and leave them wanting to think and question more. What happens to Norman Bates? What happens to uh, Scotty when he's looking over the precipice? What happens to Melanie Daniels in The Birds when they drive off and the flock's calm? Like, you know what I mean? There's more left unsaid, and Nolan fits into that camp, and I like the ambiguity aspect of that. What I love about this ending is you have three people that share an equal part in the hiding of this algorithm that all three understand the tropes or the way that this inversion mm-hmm. and entropy works. Yeah. Not to make this into a franchise. I don't, yeah, I don't, not clamoring for tenants too. <laughs> but I think we can reasonably say watching each one of them go and hide these things in a place that couldn't be found because you, th- you can't miss on this. Otherwise, you start this whole process again. Yeah. I think that's a really good story. It, it's set up in my mind yeah where oh gosh where would I, and then Ives says and i'm gonna come hunt you guys down too like you can go hide him but i'm gonna come looking for you because i'm the only one that i can trust yeah right and how long can you go you know do you wait man. 40 years do you wait 80 years you know you wait till you're an old man to bury it and then off yourself do you do it right away exactly Who knows? yeah there's some ambiguity to that yeah. but there's also a finality into it as well yeah and that getting to that ending is man being in full command of the story that you've crafted. Well, I want to talk about ambiguity because I found a clip about Nolan and Nolan was doing an interview about this film, talking about what that means for him. Uh, And I just want you guys to listen to it for a second. I believe for an ambiguity to be productive and not arbitrary, I do have to have an answer. I have to have a strong point of view. Uh, But when I did my... uh, well, the first film I did with a, with a tremendous ambiguity at the end was Memento. And the first time we ever screened the film was at the Venice Film Festival. And in a press conference afterwards, somebody said to me, you know, what's your interpretation of the end? How do you see the end? And I said, well, the important thing is it's ambiguous and it's up for the audience to, to decide. But what I think is blah, 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 blah. And nobody heard the beginning of that answer. They just heard what I think. And, and so my opinion tends to trump, uh, you know, the audience's opinion. And that... For that reason, I can't ever say what I think. Hmm. Uh, it was my brother after that press conference journey just said to me, he's like, you can't ever say what you think because that's all people are going to hear. Wow. Um, but for the ambiguity to be meaningful, for it to actually resonate, uh, the audience has to feel that there's an underlying truth there that the filmmaker believes, even if you're not willing to state it because the point, as an inception with the spinning top, the point is um, the character doesn't care anymore, doesn't know anymore, is lost in it. 
I think there's some power to that as a filmmaker and as a film audience. Like once you make something for the masses, I think you live, leave it up to them to interpret. If you start going in there and decoding exactly how you wrote it, how you directed it, how you made people act it, uh, it becomes that version of what was said. Like he said, like everyone just thought of my interpretation of how I wrote it. He's the one with the answers. But it's this gray area that he leaves up for film audiences to decipher and do exactly what we just did today that I think is an important part of film viewing, in my opinion. I'd like to talk about suspicion in regard to that for just a sure, minute. Sure, yeah, why not? I, I love that he said ambiguity versus arbitrary. Yeah. That's the key. Suspicion is 42. Mm-hmm. It's the movie that Hitchcock made with Joan Fontaine that followed Rebecca and Cary Grant. And essentially, Cary Grant is this womanizer that seems to move from the next wealthy female to the next wealthy female. And in play in that is this string of terrible events that follows Cary Grant's character and what this woman, Joan Fontaine, has just married into. Now, the way that story is originally written is he kills her at the end of that movie. Yeah. He opens up the car door and pushes her off a cliff and then takes her money and away he goes. And from what I've read, that screened very poorly because nobody wanted to see Cary Grant in that manner. So what Hitchcock did is he walked it back, went back and reshot it. And then essentially you see the same sequence where the door opens, but instead of he pushing Cary Grant, pushing Joan Fontaine out of the car, he closes the door calls her silly or some cutesy thing, puts her arm around her, and ruins, that's a bit strong, wrecks or makes a mess out of what's a really, really solid film. Mm -hmm. That's the most inauthentic or contrived ending because Hitchcock didn't, he played to what the masses thought instead of what he wrote. Yeah, If you follow that film and now you know what really was intended. He absolutely killed her. Yeah. And it's it's all over that film. The fingerprints of that are all over the movie. Yeah. From the 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 milk with the the light in it that's yep. poison. Like suspicion, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what Nolan is saying he went through as well. Hitchcock learned a very important lesson. It's why we got what's coming up later for me here in just a couple minutes, the birds and vertigo and some other yeah. things along those lines. Mm-hmm. If you play to what the audience wants and you coalesce to their 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 demands for absolute, you defang what you've spent hours developing and created an interest in for them. Don't give them that out. Yeah. And if you want something that's nice, pretty pink bow at the end of this film, what I would argue is you probably hated this whole entire film. Right. This was never intended to be that movie, was it? You probably hated all of Nolan's films, honestly. What do you think, Nate? Because this is most evident to me in The Spinning Top and Inception. I I was just going to say that. I I was glad that he brought that up, that 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 is the most up-to-interpretation ending of a film that I think I've ever seen. You know, it's still spinning. You see it wobble at the end. So it's up to you they figure out if you guys have ever like seen the script of that it's like the the the, the spinning top spins and spins until hash cut to black yep like yep. brilliant yeah. <laughs> yeah my dad was a huge nolan fan also yeah and he loved inception yeah. and he loved it because of that ending because it was so left up to your own interpretation because it was so original 
Doesn't that leave it up more to film legacy too? Yeah. The more you can interpret something in a variety of ways, like we talk about the thing a lot. There's a point, a part of me that thinks, man, I think McCready's the thing at the end of that. I think Childs is the thing at the end of that. Which way that goes is anyone's guess. But the idea that I can spend time with myself to think is power to the filmmaker. Mm -hmm. The physics of centrifugal force plays a lot in Inception for me. Mm -hmm. That has no business in any part of film that I would ever have thought. The fact that it topples a little bit, there's a little bit of a quiver, means it's losing momentum. And the other part that I found is really looking hard at the aging of his children. And in that final yes. sequence, his children are aged versus earlier. Correct. That tops, the, the totem's going to tumble, in my opinion, in that film. But there's 50 people that have totally different arguments. And you know what? From a filmmaker's point of view, if you can get people to go back and, like, like a Nolan film, and comb through it looking for clues or evidence to support your side, then I think for him, he's accomplishing what is his most ambitious endeavor. And that's why I want rewatchability because you're so into a story that you've been told over and over and over. You're searching for that. There it is right there. I found it. Yeah. Isn't that refreshing that, you yes. know, we've seen between the three of us, I would imagine, 10 plus thousand films. Probably. We've seen it all. Any plot done any which way, it's nice and just my opinion on what he brings to the table to be kind of thrown for a loop once in a while. I need that as a film enthusiast. Right. Yeah. Couple questions for you guys. Who? <laughs> what is your favorite tasting note of Tenant? I think it's probably going to have to be the fight and the art chamber and that airport. Mine's the same. Just watching the awkward manner that neither one of them is making any hay versus the other one. But it's actually still really choreographed, and they're still pretty good at defending, but no, I, I don't know how to describe it other than that. Well, who would think a fight that rarely lands a punch would be as interesting as that one? It's just in the way it's presented in the story that makes it interesting. And the thing, too, that I think enhances that for me is when you watch him kick so much ass in the back room of that restaurant, cheese grater and plates and everything. Like he doesn't even have the worry that he's going to be able to undo these guys by mostly stopping and taking them on. He just sort of is walking through the kitchen. I'm going to kick your ass and you're out and just keeps on motoring to the out mm -hmm. till he exits. Right. And sees a cat in the car. Yeah. So with that in mind, and those are, those are not little guys that he's beating up. Those are big dudes, right? Yeah. To go through what he goes through with himself and see the struggle there, yeah, it's, that's that moment. But you, Nate? thing for me about every Nolan film is the message that he always lays at the end, you know, that just he leaves it with that statement, yeah. of, you know, the unexploded bomb is the one that, you know, that makes the most or whatever. Mm -hmm. it's, he always leaves such a good message. It's a hopeful message mm -hmm. that is, it kind of just resonates with me. It sticks with me. He's a silent guardian, a watchful protector, exactly. a dark knight. Yeah, like exactly. things like that. I'm going to tell you something, Jesse, that's going to freak you out. Okay. <laughs> with that closing line in the film, yeah, the bomb that went unexploded, essentially, mm -hmm. and we all believe in this room that he's talking about, Neil. Yeah. And we talked about the beginning of this film. What's it about? I think right now, yeah. I might have to tell you, that I'm on board with this movie is about 
family. Yeah. If they lose that battle. Yeah. And Seder screws up Neil. Then humanity dies. Yeah. So the bomb that goes unexploded is keeping Neil with Cat in a healthy state. And the only way that happens is to remove Seder. I'm going to go with that. Someone asked me, what's that movie about? Family. Just for, oh my God, really? Why not? Why not? (laughs) Okay, gents, what's the, oh my God. You mentioned mine already, Matt. It's the cheese grater. There's a couple shots of him going down with, and if you've ever seen a cheese grater, they have serrated edges. Yeah. That thing's tearing up your skin. Yeah. If someone breaks into this house, I'm grabbing the cheese grater. I'm not grabbing a knife. Mess you up. <laughs> what about you guys? Is there a particular moment that makes you just go, oh my God, good or bad? Mm. If I were to go with an oh my God, good moment, that was probably the uh, the red and blue room, you know, with the to- the talking backwards and everything. That that whole moment was like the, yeah, whoa, yeah, you just blew my mind. Yeah. Like, let me think about this for a second. I, you have to like stop and like yeah. piece it together. What about you, Matt? Sater's <laughs> broken neck. Oh goodness! <laughs> As he's tumbling from the boat down, and his neck is not at all attached to anything; it's just flopping. Isn't Ugh. there something kind of just extra effective in film when, like, there's music and sound effects, but then it just cuts out, and then we see the impact and hear it, and then it just, and then we hear the mute, and then it continues. It stings a little bit more. Ooh, yeah. Is who's the master distiller on Tenet? I, mean, I think there's probably a collective here, right? Well, good, good guys, good. Well, it's Nolan. Yeah. <laughs> I'd give it to Nolan. I kind of want to give it to John David Washington because I kind of like what this guy's doing. I He's, again, we've talked about um, Pedro Pascal. Put Washington and Pattinson in that camp because these guys, and Pattinson obviously has Batman in the, in the canon right now. These guys right. are close to just blowing up. Right, you know, Pattinson's got the bad rap of Twilight yeah. hanging over him for the rest of his life. But mm-hmm. he, even my brother, he, I told him, like, hey, I watched Tenet the other day. It was awesome. And he was like, oh, it's got Robert Pattinson in it? Like, it's because of Twilight. That's crazy. When we do the Batman, we're going to have to talk about that because, right. like, like, a franchise literally gave him a name, and he's not a bad actor. No, he's not. But he's just a bad rap. Yeah. <laughs> I think we talked about this some episodes ago. Mm-hmm. He's really important right now. Yeah. This film and then with Batman coming and what we hope cinema remains. Yeah. He's big, man. We need, like, he needs to be good. Yeah. But he's going to have to suffer through two really iconic roles. And I don't mean suffer, but like in the public's minds, he'll always only be Edward <laughs> or Batman. Yeah. Vampire. Yeah. Maybe he should have yeah. been Dracula. And if are- he gets Bond, Jesse, like you were saying. Yeah, that's another one. It kind of like looked all right in this movie. Yeah. I could yeah. buy it. He's he's you know he was Cedric Diggory and oh Jesus Harry Potter. Yeah, you're right. You're right. All right. That's my favorite part in that whole series. I know we said dies. I know we said we we're going to do this, but I just I'm very curious on what you guys think. How would you rate and grade Tenant as you see it today? I'll go first while you guys pontificate on that. I'm going to go call plus. There's things I really, really like about this. And there's things that, like Matt, while we were watching, I'm also kind of frustrated with. I think this is a very exposition-heavy film. 
that is either its greatest blessing or its greatest curse. And say that as you will with Nolan. But I think I got to get in here more with this one. You know what I mean? I have to, like, this sounds so stupid. You shouldn't have to do research on films and watch them multiple times. But with some of these, I think you pick up on more the more you watch it. Like, the first time, when we watched today, much like you, I picked up on more things that I, I didn't latch on to right away. So I think I need to spend a little more time with, but I think it's an ambitious movie. Absolutely ambitious. But I can't understate the importance of these types of films coming out in the summer. Without them and horror and comedy, it's IP. It's mm-hmm. intellectual property mm-hmm. to the eleventh power. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I yeah. do it. Don't throw me out of here. No, no, do no. It, no. I, I'm going to say top shelf minus. So I, I love movies that make me think and make me want to do the research. Those are the ones that I consider truly cerebral that stick with me. You know, they make me want to go learn more about. Yeah. Why did that happen the way it happened? And so when I rewatch it, you know, I've seen Inception probably 30 times and I get more out of it every single time. You know, it's, it's never gone. There, gets, there's always something to find. It gets better. A little I love it. Yeah. And Nolan's the master of that. Yeah. He like really when you is. go, oh my God, her name in French means evil. Right. <laughs> yeah. Wait, whose name? Mall. Mall. Really? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> You're welcome. Learn something every day. See? <laughs> Yeah, it's tough. I think I might be in the same general area that you are. Yeah. I can't give this top shelf. I think I'm like you. It's not a terrible, it's not a bad, it's expertly crafted. I got a lot more out of it in viewing two than I did one. Sure. It's designed to be that way. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And I it would continue. If I kept watching it, it would continue. Here's the part that keeps it from being like slam dunk for me. I'm not sure with what I get. I want to go through it again. Oh, yeah. I, I, I would, exactly. And that doesn't mean that it would be arduous. I'd certainly rather watch this than Wonder Woman or, you know, lots of other films. Freddy's Revenge. Yeah. I, and I, like, I know. Yeah. I, after one or two more viewings, I'd have this on lockdown. Yeah. <clears throat> but look, it took three guys in a room and a flow chart. Yeah. With significant effort to get to a C plus understanding of what happened in this film. And it's, there is a little bit, and as much as I love Nolan, yeah, I know yeah. you love him more, yeah, but yeah, there's yeah. a little bit of restraint that needs to be necessary. Just because you can, doesn't mean you should. I think he almost, almost falls into the Shyamalan camp of, yep. if you go too far this way, you lose a little bit about what you're really good at. Sure. Like when he, when, like when Shyamalan's on, you get unbreakable when Nolan's on, you get something like inception. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think this, I don't want to call it a miss. No, no, no. But it is a bit of a sidestep and it didn't quite stick the landing, at least for myself, but I'm fully willing like you, Nate, to go in there, do the research, get in with it. Um, I'll watch it again. I will. That Neil character, this viewing saved that this film for me a lot. When, after my first viewing, had we cut this, mm-hmm. It would not have gotten anywhere near the grade I gave it. That Neil character to me really shone this time. And you know what it was, maybe? Yeah. Just because I was familiar with what the story was and not trying to sift through what was happening in the story. See, that was Inception for me. Yeah. That was Inception. Like, when you go in with the base understanding of the plot, you can pick up on the other things. 
Dude, is Nolan's like Einstein. Like, what does he, he does he make your movie till you have to watch it twice? You do. If this movie had come out in the summer like it was initially slated, yeah. can we all agree that it would have been a disaster? Yes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Not, I think, and I don't mean like, I, it would, would have still been the same film. Financially, this movie would have been hammered. I think it would have made money only because of what I said earlier is Nolan has a brand and people would have seen it because right. of that. I don't think it would have had the replay value of an Inception or a Dark Knight. Right. We would have gone and saw it like, three times in theaters just yeah. to get that next viewing to understand it more. Whereas I think the people that had viewed it and didn't understand it were just throwing it out. Yeah. So that kind of just stole the thunder from the question. I just wanted to ask you both. If you are who produced this, Jesse Warner this brothers, Warner brothers. Yep. If you're Warner brothers, what month should not were, but should you have released this movie in November? This yep. is a November movie. <laughs> Early November or like way before. This is the post Thanksgiving like tryptophan trip that like I want to watch like you go with your family on Friday to go see this movie. So you want to hit Blockbuster season part two? Yeah. How about you, Nate? That sounds right. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Interstellar came out around that same yeah, time too. Yeah, it was late November. I'm gonna go a bit different. Yeah. I think this is a March movie. It has a bit of a feel to spring to me. Hey, March is the new summer. And with nothing else out, a movie that's aesthetically pleasing enough and literally nothing, like right smack dab in the middle of the dead zone, going and see it a couple times would elevate this movie. And if there's no other game in town, maybe you maximize that. I want to ask you guys one more question, then we'll get to the nightcap. Uh, We watched it here at home. Didn't get to see it in theaters. This film was on. We watched it on the 4K he filmed with the IMAX cameras. This yeah. movie looks crisp yeah. as any of his IMAX shot sequences look like. There's something to that too. Yeah. And no other filmmaker bar a few other films that have used that camera have figured out. Like he's he knows how to make something look good for the home too. For sure. All righty. Well, let's go ahead and get to the nightcap. Last time I wrecked it, last time I whipped around, last time I did the whippers, last time I live a verse, put a brown, hit the reverend, last time I hit your crib, last time it was no tennis. I didn't win back in myself, felt like hell. I'm not a Travis Scott fan, but that, that song's got something to it. Like, it's got a good beat. Pretty killer. <laughs> well, all the music in the movie did. This yep. was, it was interesting because it wasn't Hans Zimmer. Right, it was the first one he hasn't done with Hans Zimmer in a long time. And it was good. We had a complaint about not the score, but the sound mixing. Yeah. I mean, the, the music kind of overtakes the dialogue in important parts. And yeah. We probably should have had the subtitles on the whole movie. Yeah, that would have probably helped us a lot. <laughs> Nate, hit us with the nightcap. All right. We've already discussed it a little bit about cerebral movies and i'd like you guys to kind of discuss it a little bit and then also name what you think is your top cerebral movie you also said ones that missed the mark yes which i want also want to get to you want to go first yeah, or me i'll too? go first matt's gonna choke me no but it's blade runner <laughs> we're, we're gonna have to do it i might have to have you back on so you just be the buffer between me and him <laughs> 
I don't need to go into detail on why I like it. We'll save it for that episode, but there's a reason why I like it. And it's that it's the whole human versus inhuman aspect of Deckard and Replicant. Honorable mention, we talked about it already, The Matrix. That concept in itself is fascinating to me. Right. We define Cerebral as a movie that makes you think. Yeah. Right. Reality versus what you perceive. Right. Two that have absolutely missed the mark for me that I people love and throw your hate at me. I don't care. Ex Machina can go pound sand. <laughs> and Under the Skin... I love Scarlett Johansson, but that movie is makes is just so stupid to me. Like there's there's cerebral for the sake of cerebralness, and then you get into the whole postmodern thing. And then there's like cerebral with a point, which is something I think Nolan's good at. So yeah, those are gonna be my answers for that question for you. You want me to go? We'll save it since your question. Um Jesse, I actually agree with that part of Blade Runner. Yeah. I would that's not gonna be my choice, but the Rucker Hauer bit monologue on the rooftop as he perishes is tears in the rain. About the only thing that works in that film for me. Okay. Honorable mention for smart. Mulholland drive is in there. If you're willing to go through the ride with David Lynch, I think that that one pays off in a way that there's something there. Also honorable mention for me is the hunger we have to do this oh, film we will. because I think that although that's like a vampire film and so it's sort of dismissed, there's a really important theme in there on procreation and mortality, but neither of those two win. It's the birds. Maybe only because I think I figured it out and that's a grossly self-serving. <laughs> Ugh, how awful, huh? But a lot of the criticism of the birds is the way that it ends because it's super arbitrary yeah. or ambiguous. Should we say arbitrary is a rough one there? Let's yeah. not use that one. It's not. It's not. And when we cut that show yeah. and break it down, it won't be. Matt will give you the answers on the birds. And that movie is essentially a love triangle disguised as birds. It is actually fairly simple when you get down to it. I would love to go back to 1962 when that film came out to just see how frustrated people were that they weren't given a concrete answer on like, why the hell are these birds attacking? Is it like spores? Is it like the environment? <laughs> like what's happening? You're right. You're 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 completely right in your uh, in what that film is about because that's Hitchcock's not stupid. No, ones that missed first first top of the <laughs> AI. Oh, yeah. That's a horrible movie. Oh, my gosh. Oh, geez. Right? And it tried to pretend that yeah. it was so holier than thou yeah. and so smart. And I'm going to say yeah. that I'm not even going to have a secondary choice because that is the leader in the clubhouse by so far. Good choice. Fuck that film. <laughs> Good choice. Yeah. What do you got, Nate? I'm, I'm very curious to see what you got. Okay. So... I'm glad you brought up the birds. That's really interesting. Because when I think cerebral, I think like sci-fi, I think, because I like the science of the films. Mm -hmm. you know, it's it's kind of based in a little bit of fiction, but reality at the same time. Mm -hmm. So my probably number one that I can watch over and over was, is probably Inception. Yeah. Honestly, it just it yeah. makes me think every time. Uh, honorable mentions, I'll probably throw Predestination. If you guys have seen that with Ethan Hawke. Mm -hmm. It was actually... 
I'm not a big fan of Ethan Hawke. Nate, you, you've been telling me about that movie for I years. Have. It is good. Yeah. I really like it's a good time travel movie that works. Okay. It it time travel is just so hard to get. I like yeah, Ethan. Unless you're Nolan. I like it. I like Ethan Hawke. <laughs> I do too. Yeah. yeah. I am not a huge fan of his, but this was really good. I highly recommend it if okay. you guys haven't seen it. Nice. Uh another honorable mention, as you've already mentioned, is the Matrix. That it's just groundbreaking. It's you know the first matrix. The first matrix. <laughs> that goes to my ones that missed the mark is absolutely those sequels oh, were Jesus just Christ. horrid. You mean when and, Neo became Jesus, you were yes, out? Right. Me too. And I even yeah. like Jesus, but that was a terrible, <laughs> no, terrible it's idea. The 30 minute it, sequence it, with the architect that makes no sense. It didn't need to happen. <laughs> you know, that first it so and that goes to my other point about cerebral movies is that they they kind of get a they miss the mark at the beginning when they come out, but they kind of get a cult following because they people get to see it again and again and they find out they like it. Yeah. You know, that that's where Nolan's movies come into play to me. Nolan's films are definitely cult filmy. Yeah. You they almost have to find their audience at, at some point. Uh that's fascinating. So are like you know, since Matrix two and three didn't miss the mark, is there any hope for Matrix Four then? Yeah. There's hope. They've had 20 years to figure it out, 25 years to figure it. There's hope. I would hope so. And you can say that, but I know you're going to see it. Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I mean, <laughs> I see terrible movies. We, watched one, last, we watched one last week. <laughs> All the time. Excellent. Nate, thank you so much for coming on board with us to help us get in the weeds with Tenant because I knew this was going to happen. I, I, I watched this and I warned Matt. I was like, Matt, this is it's busy. There's a lot going on. And then I cued you up saying, check it out. We're going to need some help to kind of just get through this. But you're just so good in that space of, you know, whether it's sci-fi or the expanded universe. I mean, you know more about Star Wars than I ever, and Lord of the Rings than I ever will. But that's where we'll lean on you for is, you know, to help us just get it, get in there with the stuff that is less spoken about sometimes. Thank you, Nate. Gentlemen, thank you for letting me come back on. Well, of course, yeah, so much fun. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. yeah, we've got a lot of films. Like as Matt and I have talked on at nauseum, the Western cask is in the making at some point in the future, and I know that's a very sacred land for you. So I would love your perspective. From that, that is a promised cask in twenty, the first half of twenty twenty one. Name mm-hmm. promised. Yeah, can't wait. Excellent. Well, uh, coming up next week, we're going to wrap up 2020 catch up with another film from a prominent filmmaker that I cannot believe we haven't done one of his films yet because we're just saving all the good stuff of these guys for future. And that is one Mr. David Fincher, and it's a film released exclusively to Netflix, and it's a film called Mank. I haven't watched it yet. You haven't watched it yet. We're. I don't think that might be an interesting episode. I might not cut all the clips for it. I might do just some intro and outro sound. And we might just do that one just raw, just you you and I. Perfect. And just kind of get into it and just just do it. Let's get naked and go raw. <laughs> <laughs> go skinny dipping next week. <laughs> but this is going to be fascinating. I mean, you know, whether it's Seven or Zodiac or The Social Network, I mean, this is a guy that's made his stamp on auteur filmmaking in both your and my's filmmaking generation. So he's an important figure. I can't wait to kind of check this film out. That's kind of all about the making of Citizen Kane, which I kind of also like. So yeah. this will this will be a lot of fun. But until next week, cheers, gentlemen. Cheers. Happy birthday to you, Nate. Happy birthday. Thank Nate. you for coming on and helping us dissect this. I got to get going. I'm going to go get through a turnstile and undo the Christmas lights so I don't have to physically do it in my timeline. That a guy. <laughs>
I love that idea because the breakdown part, being able to repeat that and not having to do it would sure be nice in the future. Excellent. We'll see you all next week. Everybody have a great week. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing and want to leave us some comments or some feedback, hit us up on any of our social media platforms or at Productions at gmail.com. Tenant is property of Warner Brothers Pictures and Sin Copy, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Once the bomb didn't go off, the danger no one knew was real. That's the bomb with the real power to change the world.